back to Failure Peace Theater. This is episode two, When Predator Met Alien. Uh, welcome. Glad to have you back in our little space here so we can talk a little bit about some movies. Uh, I am Tim, one of your hosts, and here with me today is... Catherine, I am your sister. That's right. Catherine, my sister. And we are here to talk about perhaps one of the most formative early film experiences for both of us, I would mm. say. This was a pretty important one to us at the time. Uh, and that, of course, is Alien vs. Predator, stylized A-V-P. Uh, the 2004 Paul W.S. Anderson mashup, franchise mashup, of the Alien and Predator franchises. Something that had been long awaited on, uh, people had been asking for since the end of Predator 2, uh, and a little bit before, but we'll talk about that. And, um, you know, a, a pretty important one in the grand scheme of things, but one that a lot of people were disappointed in, unfortunately. I think we can say that pretty uh, pretty universally loathed <laughs> at the time, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, it's hard to, hard to say that, but uh, the uh, the consensus was not good for most people. Um, I, don't, I wasn't quite that down on it at the time, but it certainly had its issues. Uh, so let's kick it off. Uh, before we get into the, the meat of the issue, what have you been watching? Catherine, what have you been using to salve these savage times? I have been trying to get my husband to watch the Netflix show Kiss Me First. Um, I watched it back when it came out, and I revisited it, and I just I really want him to like the show. Um, yeah. It's it's very clever, very subtle. Um, I like. I mean, it's kind of about um, virtual reality video game and a young woman who's sort of disenfranchised in her real life and how she escapes into it. And it's very very interesting. Yeah, sounds cool. Um, yeah, we've been doing some Netflix stuff too. Uh, we did watch Space Force. Um, I watched the first episode of that too. It is it is okay. Um, I'm I'm not loving it. You're being uh, so think, generous. <laughs> <laughs> um, I certainly love the premise, uh, but I think it's one of those instances where the the show is built on a premise rather than a really solid set of ideas. It feels a lot like the first season of The Office, if we're being honest. Well, um, I'll wait for but season two. That, then. <laughs> that, but without that really convenient course correction where they turned. You know, Michael Scott from a sort of vindictive jerk into a, a sort of well-meaning jerk, you know. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't really get that boost or that benefit. Um, I think some of the surrounding characters are really good. I actually end up liking, I like Jimmy O. Yang a lot uh, in it. He doesn't get much to do, but I think he's really good with what he's given. Um, but some of the stuff just doesn't go anywhere. Uh, the, the whole relationship with the daughter is just kind of a non-starter for me. Like, it just doesn't make sense what they they wind up doing with that character but um you know we went all the way through it uh, we had a couple of nights and uh it was it was fine you know nothing great but it was fine uh, I, also, I did watch uh hansel and gretel as well have uh, you watched really middle good. ditch and schwartz what's up have you watched middle ditch and schwartz no i have not although you are or, not the first person to recommend it to me. Oh, I, I think it would be up my Good Aww. God. I I love <laughs> it. We talked last night a little bit about it. Um and I normally don't love improv because it seems like improv 
usually thinks it's going to be good, whereas they kind of assume it's going to be bad. And they yeah. they make fun of the shortcomings of improvisational comedy. It's, oh, sure. it's amazing. It was really, really funny. Oh, that's cool. No, that sounds really good. Uh, yeah, I mean, improv is a real acquired taste for me. I've, you know, I like uh, Upright Citizens Brigade. You know, they've, they've got some stuff that you can find that's pretty decent in terms of improv. And you can certainly do some cool things, but it's it's rough like it's it's hard to watch that and i think a lot of it is just the reaction to so much of our our current comedy landscape is made up of those those improv folk and that kind of comedy works for some people and it doesn't work for other people and uh, i'm kind of in the middle just really depends but uh yeah totally i i need to check that out uh obviously i i really like both those those actors quite a bit but uh, so yeah, a little bit of that. Um, you know, in terms of movies, I've been revisiting some older stuff you know, in preparation for the podcast. But also, uh, just you know, things that are cropping up again. You know, stuff that kind of falls off the radar and then comes back, mostly due to streaming services and their 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 many deals. But um, yeah, so I mean, you know, mostly just trying to. Uh, I've been keeping things light. I haven't been watching anything too heavy, which you know, obvious reasons. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess let's get into AVP. Yay. Um, so AVP was a long-awaited sequel to two very famous film franchises, now both owned by Disney, mm. um, which I don't even want to think about. Ellen Ripley is a Disney princess. <laughs> that's who the she only is Disney now. princess um, for me. That's right. She's, got a, she's already got an animal friend, right? Jonesy the cat right there oh um God. you know i could see her on the, the colony of lv426 just sort of spinning out out in, in nature just wondering about what is going to happen to her and you know how to find her way and do you think we'll have like a, a disney ride that's like ripley's cryotube adventure where we all get uh, in the cryotube and then we get we get sent into like a dark tunnel and there's aliens <laughs> everywhere i'd ride that I, I actually watched. Um, do you do you ever watch uh, Defunct Land on YouTube? Uh-uh. Apparently, they tried to make a uh, alien themed ride back <laughs> in the nineties, and it all kind of collapsed. Oh. Um, and, and this was Disney. This was was part of one of Disney's. I guess the main park in California. They were trying to do this, and the whole thing fell apart and uh, didn't work. And so they brought in again. I just. I, this makes no sense. They brought in George Lucas <sighs> to redesign what they had already kind of done with the ride, which was intended to be a horror ride. Like, it was scary. Um, and, and kind of remix it into something a bit more family-friendly. So they got Jeffrey Jones <laughs> yep, to play a space alien who tries to get transported to meet a group of humans, but in the process of being transported, he turns into a monster and breaks out of the transportation tube and then kind of chases them through the ride and um apparently it, it still was really terrifying and and it would like traumatize little kids cool. so they they ended up uh shelving it before too long but it ran for a while like a couple of years but that was originally supposed to be an alien ride so there was certainly some some uh interest by the disney imagineers to create something in this universe so they may revisit it it's very possible now that they have full control of the franchise 
Well, that's we'll see. terrible. <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't it just the worst? <laughs> Um, all right, so AVP, uh, as I said, came out in the summer 2004, very big deal, uh, late summer 2004. This was an August movie, so already you can see that the studio was a little bit like, not so sure this is going to be okay. Um, but late summer 2004, um, highly anticipated. I mean, like it's hard to, to put into words how excited people were for this movie, not only because it was you know, Alien vs. Predator, which was a huge matchup, people didn't want to see for so long, but also because we had not gotten an entry in either of these franchises for a while, right? So the the landscape in terms of both of these franchises is pretty bleak. Uh, Alien Resurrection had come out in 1997 and was just loathed and by we don't talk everyone, about that I think. Because um, it was the worst. <laughs> so bad. Um, I mean, I there are things about Alien Resurrection that I don't. I don't hate uh, Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman is great. Ron Perlman is Ron Perlmaning everything in that movie. Um, and there's there's some good moments, some good set pieces. You know, very famously, Joss Whedon had said that the entire setup was basically like if you took his script that he was really excited about and was really good, and then just sort of like misinterpreted everything in that script and just got it all wrong. Um, you know, but that's that is typical sort of after-the-fact Hollywood stuff. But uh, in any case, you know, that movie did not do well. Uh, it, I think it eventually, you know, made its money back. I don't think it was a, a bomb, but it certainly did not perform to the expectations of an Alien film. Uh, even Alien 3, which had also been very negatively received. At better that wasn't film. even a finished movie. <laughs> no, <laughs> Alien 3 was... I mean, I, I really... The only Alien 3 version that I can recommend watching is the work print that they released as part of the quadrilogy back mm-hmm. in the day. And I, I guess it's now on all of the like, three releases, but it's really the only watchable version. Uh, the theatrical version makes no sense. Characters disappear from the last act of the movie for no reason. Entire and, we're never seen, and they're never seen again. Missing. Just, just gone. Yeah. No, it's just, it, you can, it's one of the first like really obvious examples of studio savagery in terms of the final edit. Uh, and the fact that David Venture to this day refuses to speak about the film sort of tells you everything you need to know. But so uh, the Alien franchise was, you know, a blasted wasteland. Like, nobody wanted to touch it. And the Predator one, <laughs> there had been a bunch of projects that had come and gone, like a bunch of false starts. Um, supposedly Predators, the uh, uh, Robert Rodriguez produced Predator movie, was... Uh, you know, sort of the result of a lot of those scripts and ideas being tossed around and not really getting the green light. But so Predator, we hadn't had one since Predator 2 uh, from the early 90s. So, I mean, you know, we hadn't had any movement. And here all of a sudden we're going to get both. So it was super exciting. I can see why everybody was, was really anticipatory. But it was probably too much anticipation, if we're being honest. A lot of people from gaming were especially excited because i guess that's the one arena where alien and predator never really died Mm -hmm. you know the the fan base continued and got bigger and more sprawling and almost by the time 2004 rolled around the fan creature that was aliens versus predator had just become something completely different and i think that worked against the film for sure. Um, you know, I guess we really need to address the Alien versus Predator, even though most people attribute the end of Predator 2 being the sort of link between these franchises. 
Uh, because very famously, you know, Danny Glover's yes. character in Predator 2 goes on to the uh, Predator ship and, uh, you know, in the, the hall of trophies on the ship that, that they hold, there is an a, uh, alien skull, which is just an Easter thing. egg. Like, it wasn't supposed to be story-based. Um, but it's a great moment. It's really cool. I mean, it's just neat to see those things sort of get linked up. And so everybody from that point on was like, oh, you know, we got to see, we got to see that. Uh, and it was, it was, it was a great idea, but it really, it had originated in uh, Dark Horse comic mm-hmm. books in the late 1980s. Um, you know, and uh, we're going to get some name drops in this movie. We'll talk about them when we get there. But one of them, of course, is, uh, you know, some of the people that helped craft those initial alien and predator stories. And so uh, Dark Horse had both licenses. They uh, had them working independently and then eventually decided to sort of team them up into some shared universe comic books that did very, very well, right? Those are some of the really early Dark Horse successes. And um, that's where we get a lot of this hype for Alien vs. Predator. And then really they just confirmed it in the film. You know, it was more of a like, hey, yes, this is a thing. We're going to make it canonical, not just in the comic books. So, um, as you said, video games, uh, we started seeing AVP video games pretty frequently throughout the 90s. I know um, I was one of the morons that bought an Atari Jaguar back in the day. Not at full price, I, I will say. I did not pay full price. For it was that, $89.99 from Tiger right. Direct. It's so, so uh, great. I loved, I loved that thing. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I thought it was awesome. I and loved so it we, so much I bought a second one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I I always liked it, but of course, it was a, a great Alien vs Predator game, and you know the the unspoken they're called Alien vs Predator, but it really should be called Alien vs Predator vs Human, right? Because the humans are always in the mix; it's never just aliens and predators. Yeah. And so there was a great game on Jaguar. Probably the best Jaguar game was that one. I would say there's a few others that would be up there, but it was it was a really solid game. I would you know one that I would still recommend if you can find a copy of it or emulate a copy of it. It's, it's I have a copy of it in box hanging on my wall right now. Uh, heck yeah, I'm man! I'm just the person to talk about this um, uh, Alien versus Predator stuff. Uh, but yeah, it was it was really good. Then of course we had some. Uh, uh, solid PC games, uh, Alien vs. Predator 2000, as it's known, which you can now routinely pick up for like 99 cents on the Steam store if you're interested. Uh, it's not a, a great game, but it is fun. It's like a Quake 2 engine, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, so there, there was a tremendous amount of hype, right, to see these two colossal titans of horror and science fiction and, and just big franchise filmmaking kind of come together. Uh, the The final... You know, result was pretty divisive. A lot of people did not care for it. Um, so on Rotten Tomatoes, our, our lovely, lovely movie database of reviews, uh, it cur- currently carries a 21% critic rating and a 39% audience rating. So uh, back to the sort of normal Rotten Tomatoes breakdown of a, a higher audience rating than a critic rating. But even the audience rating on this one's pretty low. And that's out of 430 some odd thousand reviews. So that's, that's quite a bit of feedback. Um, so just to sort of break down, I've got some, some reviews here that sort of comment on consistent issues that are normally associated with AVP. And, and I'll kind of let you sound off on, on each one and see what you think. 
this is from John Monahan from the Detroit, Detroit uh, Free Press, August 14th, 2004. Uh, Paul Simon and Bob Dylan, Elton John and Billy Joel, Alien vs. Predator is just another contrived combination of two former chartbusters who performed their greatest hits before coming together for a duet at the end. Ouch. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a little harsh. He thought about that a right? while. <laughs> he did. He was really sort of going for that metaphor. He was in the um, car on the way home from the theater like, oh, 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 I got one. It's like when Paul Simon and Bob Dylan got together. I'm going to stick uh, it to Paul Simon while I'm at it. That's right. That's right. Screw Paul Simon. Um, yeah, so, I mean, he is, is not a fan. He says it's just, you know, sort of the, the greatest hits and then a, a little sort of jingle at the end to, to cap things off. Um, but noting that these, these were sort of two franchises that had either, you know, were at the decline or were on the decline regardless. And, and I think that was the sort of common consensus among the critics. They really came in expecting to be won back because neither of these franchises had done much in the last decade to really win, you know, much, uh, I guess you could say garner much in the way of, uh, kindness, right? They, like, you know, this is... 30 years or 25 years from Ridley Scott doing Alien and uh, you know, 20 from Aliens. Uh, so it's rough, but that's one of them. Uh, all right, so this is uh, David Hiltbrand from the Philadelphia Inquirer, August 16, 2004. Uh, Anderson seems so pleased with the fact that he came up with a thinly plausible pretext for this clash of the popcorn titans that he didn't bother to develop characters or fashion a plot with any suspense. I disagree. Yeah, that's a little bit easier to sort of poke holes at. Um, character development in these franchises is one of the things that I think sets, uh, well, on the part of Alien, Predator less so. Um, but on the part of Alien, like that's one of the things that I think uh, we get in what is ostensibly just a horror franchise. Like Alien especially, it's a horror movie. Uh, Cameron did a lot to change that into a horror action movie, but at the core it's, it's still, still scary. You know, people, people getting impaled and stuff, right? Um but we do get, you know, really solid character development in Aliens, right? In the original Alien, I don't think there's a tremendous amount of character development. I Most always of felt like the, the character development was more, we join our actors now in progress. You know, mm -hmm. we, we're dropped into a lot of conflict and a lot of suggested tensions between these characters. So there's not so much development as much as there's just a good layer of realism to the way that they're portrayed. Yeah. And I think me you can dishing fill out in a the compliment gaps. to Ridley yeah. Scott is a big deal. I don't do that. Compliment <laughs> Ridley Scott. Yeah, I was thinking about it the other day, and honestly, I think in terms of Alien, you know, I was trying to remember the first time I saw it, and I was very young, too young. I was probably seven or eight. And uh, I remember sitting in the Papasan chair in our house in the... Those days and and watching it and covering my head with a blanket during several key moments. But one thing I do remember vaguely thinking is that Ripley was not the one that I expected to survive. Right? There was nothing about the development over the course of that movie until later. I mean, by the by the end of the second act, like it's it becomes obvious that Ripley's the only one that's really doing anything that's going to keep her alive. Um, but like, if you think about the opening act of that movie, Ripley is, she's the rule follower, right? Like she's the one that doesn't want to break the rules. It wants to follow all the rules and wants to do what's right. And, and she's, she's held up almost immediately as like, 
Shut up, Ripley. You're such a jerk. You're such a jerk. And, and yeah, I mean, like you, you completely get it by the end of the movie, but I, I think it was pretty obvious that most people were expecting, you know, Tom Skerritt because he's the biggest actor in this movie by far at this <laughs> point. And people were expecting Tom Skerritt to survive, and then he's the first one to go, like quite literally. Um, not well, he's not the first, but you know, his death is the most dramatic. Yeah, because you you don't expect it. Like it's like, well, why? you can't kill Dallas, right? Like he's the captain; he's supposed to survive, and then he immediately, you know, gets taken out, and they're kind of left to fend for themselves. Which is where Ripley then, you know, really takes over, and she's like, "No, this is what we're doing." I I always sort of read it as she's the smart person. She is the one who's saying, like, well, you know, if we just do exactly what we're supposed to do, then everything should turn out fine. Like, why don't we follow quarantine? Why don't we just slow down? She was right about everything. (laughs) Um, And I've always liked that about the character, because I am kind of a... I mean, I'm a little bit like that. I'm like, why don't we just wait and see what happens with the Mm -hmm. guy with the giant hideous alien creature glued to his face let's not let him on the ship yeah let's not just put him back in the ship already like everything will be fine like no not at all uh so yeah i think um i think alien has brought the idea of really strong character development into this franchise or into this the alien versus predator like that's really where that complaint comes from and i really think that that only works because Ripley gets a really fantastic arc over the course of Alien and Aliens. Um, like her, her arc between those two films is really, really good. And I mean, honestly, to and, and to deal with the fact that you're you're following James, in James Cameron's footsteps. Apparently, no matter how many years in between the mm. last sequel, but James Cameron is one of the best writer directors for establishing very quickly who characters are. And building worlds and backstories for those characters, um, you know the the simple choice in Aliens to allow each of the Marines to decorate their own armor to you know give it its own spin. That's a choice of a guy who is thinking about how can I communicate character very quickly in a way that works economically for my film. Terminator has the same thing. Like you know who Sarah Connor is by the second scene, right? She gets that ice cream dumped into her lap or dumped into her pocket and you just see that expression on her face and then you see her you know trying to have a life in her, things because obviously the rest of her life sucks her whole her whole build-up is foghorn like wah, wah. Mm-hmm. you know yeah. everything about her life is plain everything about her life is kind of pointless she doesn't it's just it's the whole idea that anybody could be the mother of the future Anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he establishes establishes it in less than sixty seconds of screen time. Um because Alien that's what Cameron's good at. Like, really... That is, is one of his skills. So to 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 follow up James Cameron on establishing character, yeah. I think is it's unfair. <laughs> like yeah. at this point, it is unfair to uh to expect those levels of accomplishment. But still, you know, the lack of characterization we'll we'll get there when we discuss the characters of this film. But I, I I feel Anderson working hard to try and build character as much as he can um, because this is a large cast, surprisingly large cast. Um, it makes sense for the way they set the movie up. Um, obviously, a lot of it is padded so that they can have 
death scenes, uh, which they need in a film like this, because you don't just have aliens that need to kill people, you have predators that need to kill people, and aliens to be made so the predators can kill them. So, I mean, there's there's some serious issues, but... Uh, yeah, so that one's pretty rough, too. All right, last uh, quote here is from Lisa Schwartzbaum, uh, Entertainment Weekly, so probably one of the bigger reviews from this time period, August 20th, 2004. To ingest Alien vs. Predator on its own slimy, divertingly synthetic terms, it helps to forget everything previously known and loved about the franchise monster aliens who get star billing. Wow. Yeah, so that one's that one's rough too. Like basically, the only way you can enjoy this is if you forget everything. That came Everyone before. was so mean. <clears throat> so mean. Uh, Alien, like I said, Alien vs Predator was pretty thoroughly savaged, and the only positive reviews that I read, at least, uh, were were pretty middling. Right? They were not like, yeah, this is great. It was like a, you know, this is pretty decent popcorn filmmaking, and that was kind of the best it got. So uh, obviously, the critical reception pretty negative. In terms of its overall performance, uh, it did okay. And you know, in terms of its box office, it was certainly an underperformer, but but uh, it did all right, uh, just not great. Uh, but the common problems uh, that I saw in uh, most of the reviews and reactions were that the film, at its core, was was boring. Uh, it just doesn't move, and uh, not a lot happens, which I think is is pretty unfair. But that was a common one that I saw uh, that was uninspired. I didn't have much, didn't have much of its own uh, life that it was drawing too heavily, perhaps, on uh, the past. That it diverges from the Alien franchise too fully, and there is one major reason, and uh, we'll talk about it, and that is super quick Alien chestbursters. Uh, so many people, oh my goodness, I even remember when it came out, going to early forums and people losing their minds over the fact that the alien chestbursters did not get a full like 24 hour and now those people are completely silent because a little movie called prometheus came out and now we know that none of that shit matters anymore yeah no one cares uh but anyway so that was a a big one diverges from the alien franchise just kind of pulls us away from that doesn't have enough of that in it uh which whatever uh, <laughs> that it destroys two franchises at once instead of one. Saw that phrase more than a few times. Destroyed franchise, which I guess is the 2004 equivalent of ruined my childhood. Uh, at least I, I think we can. I hate to see what these people that that thought of Ghostbusters. Bet they would what be. I hate to see what they thought of Ghostbusters. Bet they'd be among the ranks of they ruined my childhood. Oh, ab- with absolutely. Those stinky, yeah. smelly um, women. A uh, lot of people, and I think this is coming directly from the fact that, that uh, Anderson had found some success with Resident Evil at this point, uh, is that it felt like a video game, not a movie. Um, which I think is just, that's a pretty straightforward dig for a guy that had built his career on the success of, of video game franchise adaptations, right? Of course, Anderson is also responsible for Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat, the greatest um, video game movie ever made! I <laughs> I watched it not too long ago. And it holds up okay. Like, I it's watch not it a bad regularly. Flick, they put that shit on Netflix. I am there for it. I'll watch it yeah. anytime. I saw yeah, it in the theater. Yeah, no, it, it holds up okay. It is not bad at all. Um, so I, I think that's where that's coming from. But those are sort of the common problems that, that uh, are usually attributed to to AVP. Uh, so we can kind of address those as we we do our deep dive. But I guess really, uh, we need to summarize this movie, sort of break it down for those who might not have seen it. 
Um, and it's there's nothing about it that's too terribly surprising. If you take the premise, we need to get aliens and predators together. The story that they crafted here is it makes a certain amount of sense. And it's got a little little bit of nod to the thing in it, which I liked. Mm-hmm. It has its yeah, little we're, carpenter shout out. We're in a, a sort of frozen wasteland, right? We're in the Arctic, so. Um, all right, well, let's just kind of break it down. We'll talk about the, the sort of basic through line of the film. Uh, what we get at the beginning is uh, a mirror to... Well, there are a couple different versions of this movie. I guess we need to address that. Uh, we do have a director's cut that was released later that it doesn't add a ton. I, I don't know. Would you agree? Um, I don't think it adds much. Um, mostly just some extended sequences, a bit more gore. Uh, they did have to scale the gore down. Uh, which I guess we can address. There was some controversy in that uh, the initial theatrical release of this film was PG-13. Everybody was expecting an R-rated film. It came from two R-rated franchises. Um, But the decision was made because this is the era of blockbuster filmmaking that uh, PG-13 was the, the target so that they could get butts and seats. And uh, so the film that Anderson turned in was PG-13, which I think made a lot of people angry right off the bat, like immediately uh, once that was announced. more violence. Yeah, so the director's cut really, it just amps that violence back up to its, um, to that that sort of pre-PG-13 choice level. And it's still not a ton. I mean, most of the violence they, they tone down here because the predator blood is green, the alien blood is, is you know, the, the sort of yellowish acid. And so most of the, the gore in this is actually related to that. There's not a ton of human gore to begin with. You know, some people get blown up and, and stuff, but it's it's pretty minimal. There is one chestburster scene that actually is pretty solid. Um, but that, that PG-13 rating, you can feel it. You could feel that they had to scale things back pretty significantly, which Anderson had experience with. Um, I guess we can briefly address uh, his... You know the film that that matters most to us. His fact, masterpiece. His masterpiece uh, by far, uh, which of course is Event Horizon. So we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But uh, with AVP, uh, we if you're watching the unrated version, we get a a little opening sequence that is actually very similar to the opening sequence of Prometheus, um, <laughs> <laughs> namely that we've got a couple of archaeologists who are are digging around for ancient Earth artifacts, and you know they get they don't find them, but it's it's a guy who's researching all of these ancient cultures that seem to have a bunch of similarities, right? Like, oh, they all kind of have the same kind of pyramid structures and whatnot, and uh, and and he's sort of searching for those things. But then we very quickly get to uh, the sort of traditional alien opening, or predator opening, excuse me, of a predator ship entering Earth's atmosphere and uh, dropping something off, right? And so we get, uh, you know, that sort of slow rotational shot of the ship sort of coming into Earth's atmosphere and uh, reactivating. Then things sort of uh, develop very quickly. Uh, We're quickly introduced to uh, Charles Bishop Wayland, uh, which is, again, another kind of fun Easter egg for Alien franchisees, because in Alien 3, it was introduced, or at least supposed, that Bishop, or the Bishop model of androids, was based on Wayland himself. And, you know, that's a perfectly fine thing to have in the franchise until they made Prometheus. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I'm gonna try not to bring it up a lot. <laughs> I know, I know. We, we, we're we're gonna have to deal with it because there are as much as people want to sort of make Prometheus this tremendous outlier, it, it has a lot of its ideas rooted in stuff that had been rolling around in the Alien franchise for a long time, but nobody had really shown us or cared to deal with because that was never the point, you know. So, um, in any case, um, Charles Bishop Wayland uh, and a research station or a satellite of his, I guess we get another shot of that in the, the director's cut, a, a satellite of his has registered uh, a heat signature in a place where there shouldn't be one, right? Presumably from the Predator ship turning something on. And so he's putting together a team, you know, an expedition to go down here because he thinks that this could be some tremendous discovery. And he, um, you know, it's it's played, of course, by Lance Henriksen, and Lance Henriksen is awesome. We'll talk about him in a little bit um, because he is, is a bright, shining spot in this movie as he is in most of the movies that he's in, save for maybe Hellraiser... Was that seven? <laughs> for which one he was in? Uh, he was kind of phoning in for that one at the beginning house, but um, but he's putting together this expedition, so he's getting together people, right? He's got to he's got to find people to go on this expedition. So uh, that's where our archaeologist guy comes into the picture, uh, and then of course our our you know main character, our our Ripley surrogate, um, and uh, so he's collecting everybody, getting everybody together. They assemble. Uh, there's some various hijinks that go on as they're putting the group together. And uh, Sick Boy is here uh, for some <laughs> reason. I, um, uh, I think mostly because probably you know Anderson sort of also comes out of that that uh, you know sort of English that '90s English time period, the same one that, that Danny Boyle did come out of as well. And I think he you know, he's kind of pulling from that. Uh, and he wants a little bit of comedic relief, uh, which uh, Sick Boy is able to provide. Um, but so they head down to the Arctic. Uh, they arrive at a whaling station that's been abandoned because there was a mysterious event there. Everybody died, sort of a Roanoke feel. Uh, so it's been abandoned ever since. And they discover that uh, they were getting ready to board down to whatever this heat signature is. They believe it to be a temple, right? Isn't that, isn't that the thing? They, they like heat map it, and it looks like a... Uh, it's like a pyramid structure. Yeah, and, and the, the archaeologist guy notes that it, it has archaeological, or it has uh, architectural hallmarks from all of these great cultures. So it could be like the proto-pyramid, right? So like the one where everything started. And uh, yeah, so everybody's getting excited. So much like Prometheus. Yeah, I, I know. Like in watching this again, I was like, Prometheus, man, like, straight up it. Like take the like add predators in instead of the engineers, and this is the basic movie. opening premise of Prometheus. Uh, where's Guy Pierce? Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, dead in his old age makeup. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Why did they hire me for this role? Uh, so they uh, they head down to this pyramid. They find that a, a giant, uh, and we I guess we see this happen, but a giant laser beam has been shot through the ice and opened up a tunnel down to this thing. And it is one heckin' huge laser beam. It is a big laser beam and a big, big tunnel. Like it's actually one of the more interesting set pieces in the movie. Like it doesn't, you know, it's very short, but you know, there's some some threat, you know, falling down this thing. Uh, it's established that Wayland is ill. Uh, we don't know with what. We can presume some kind of lung cancer or something. But he is is ill. You can feel that they're they're trying to establish him as a guy who's tried to. He's made a mark, but he's really trying to leave some kind of lasting legacy, right? He's he's worried about sort of how he'll be remembered, and so he's trying to find these cool 
this cool discovery that he can stake his, his reputation on. Although presumably that wouldn't be an issue because he's already like a multi-billionaire industrial magnet or something, but whatever. So he's, he um, is ill and uh, he actually falls going down the ice tunnel and uh, he's rescued by our heroine. Uh, Alexa Woods is her name. And because uh, she is a, a, I guess she's a mountain climber, technically. She tells stories about like climbing Everest and stuff. We see her, you know, we're introduced to her climbing a sheer rock face, you know, or a sheer ice wall. And, um, you know, so we're, we're you can feel she Anderson a, is like, She was a ahead. pretty believable badass, though. I like that mm-hmm. she was, I actually really liked her little character moments. Um, again, I, I bring up the franchise that shall not be named, but I was kind of putting her up against... Um, uh, Dr. Shit, I can't even remember the Prometheus chick's name. Oh, uh, Elizabeth Shaw. Shaw, Dr. that's right. Dr. Elizabeth Shaw. <laughs> Shaw, played by Numi Rapace. Rapace, Rapace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I've heard it pronounced both ways, but I've, I've, I, I, Rapace is one of them frequently, but they, Elizabeth have, Shaw. They both kind of have this unspoken strong father connection like they had a close relationship with their fathers but Mm -hmm. i realized i believed woods alexa woods situation with her father a little bit more like i found it just more engaging maybe because it didn't i don't know it wasn't shoved down my throat so much but i like no i oh me too i i think um Anderson is is pretty economical in a lot of his filmmaking, uh, probably just because of budgetary reasons. He seems like a guy who's very, very conscious of where the dollars are going. And, you know, so he needs to establish her as a badass. Again, we we already talked about how an alien Ripley sort of builds to that. Um, But in this one, we need to know that she's capable. We need to know she's strong. But I like, you know, we see her climbing the ice wall and then... uh, Number one from Resident Evil. I forget, <laughs> I forget the actor's name. Uh, here, I can find it real quick. Um, but in essence, he he sort of meets her and says, you know, um, uh, Charles Bishop Wade wants to meet with you. Uh, Colin Salmon uh, is the actor's name. Um, he wants to meet with you. And, you know, she's like, I don't have time. I've got these things I'm doing. And he convinces her. But then the first conflict that she's introduced to is is that very, you know, sort of Ripley-esque point of view, because he's saying, oh, we're going to do these things, and she's like, that is way too dangerous. Like, you're going to get people killed, and, and you know, I can't be a part of that. Um, so, you know, again, you can feel Anderson working to, to sort of craft her in the Ripley mold, make her her own character, but still sort of draw upon your awareness as a viewer of of Ripley's type, right? She cares about the rules. She cares about people being safe. She cares about making sure that everything goes smoothly. Um, and, and I think that that does a really good job of, of establishing her quickly. And then when she gets the opportunity to do some of the, you know, incredible things she winds up doing over the course of it, you get, you know, you understand why. So I don't think she's a bad character. Um, you know, you, maybe one or two more scenes of developing her might have been worthwhile, but again, who knows? So uh, they go down to the temple, and sure enough, it is, in essence, a, a, a pyramid under the ice, isolated um, and, and seemingly you know, cold and dark, but things are firing up. And so we actually get a pretty cool sequence of, the, of an alien queen being unfrozen, I guess, or taken out of some kind of hypersleep, and she immediately starts laying eggs. 
um, and those eggs get you know sort of siphoned off into various places within the temple and uh, they they enter right and so there's a lot of like little stuff that we could talk about here a lot of people like to complain about um, there are cobwebs in the the temple like in this Arctic temple where it's like four degrees or you know way less than that you know there would be no bugs like that kind of stuff but whatever like I'm, I'm not gonna nitpick at that point that's some prop designer's fault <laughs> right you know and, and it's you need to communicate visually the place hasn't been disturbed for a long time like you know it's 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 what you expect in a horror movie like you're just gonna see stuff like that but anyway so they go inside the temple they find a bunch of uh sacrificial remnants right basically some dead bodies with their chests burst out another sort of classic iconic alien moment and uh but it's all uh sort of formalized right it's it's like it's part of a system and uh in essence what we what they discover without knowing it is a predator hunting ground and this is straight out of one of the early avp comics mm -hmm. right the, so the the first sort of big one i guess Oh, what was that one called? Um, yeah, the very first one takes place on a planet called Ryushi, and it's it's got a bunch of people who have colonized there, and they colonize it without realizing that it was a predator hunting ground, and there's all this alien stuff there, and uh, you know eventually they get drawn into that conflict. So it's very much in that vein, right? Like basically, the humans, without knowing it, have stumbled into something they don't understand. Right? So that is preserved here for sure. And uh, eventually the predators show up, and uh, the ritual is supposed to begin. Uh, Anderson establishes that they they sort of have to earn um, certain weapons, right? Like these these new predators, these ones that are coming to the hunting ground to prove themselves. They aren't given a full arsenal. They have to work their way into the temple, obtain their equipment, and then fight their way back out. Uh, which is kind of a neat idea. Like I think that's cool, right? That they are sort of handicapped. Um, in terms of their abilities until they can you know, work their way into the temple. And the humans are constantly interfering with that. They end up finding those weapons and, and um, taking them for themselves. And so the, the predators enter the temple and then basically aren't equipped to deal with the aliens well. And uh, you know, another complaint is that two of the predators go down almost immediately in this movie. Even though these, these badass hunters get taken out very quickly. I sort of but again, like I think that's that because kind of, it establishes that the aliens really are a formidable threat. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of people were expecting the aliens to just get beat up on in this movie, but they actually cause significant They should problems, be the most you know? terrifying species in the galaxy. Like, we couldn't make anything more terrifying than that. Yeah, uh, I mean, that was always their, their thing, and uh, I think this movie does preserve that to a certain extent. Um, so it continues on, they continue exploring, they're fighting their way out of the temple. The temple is a constantly shifting and rotating maze, again, sort of playing on this idea that it's kind of a game that the hunters have to, or the predators, I guess, have to, uh, work their way through. Uh, so a lot of the humans get separated, we get some pretty decent kills, uh, in terms of both aliens and predators. And ultimately they have to fight their way back to the surface and escape where we get a final confrontation between the primary predator and uh, the queen alien, which has uh, escaped and is now attempting to you know, fight its way to the surface and kill everything, presumably. And uh, so, I mean, we get a lot of those conflicts. 
that we would expect in something like this. Um, ultimately, there is a, a final battle. The main predator is killed, uh, but not before he has the chance to sort of christen uh, Alexa Woods as a hunter in her own right. Right? So there's this cool ritual where you take a little bit of the acidic blood from the alien, you kind of mark yourself with it. He marks his helmet after killing uh, his first set of aliens, and she kind of gets a similar mark. And uh, then she has some of the weaponry that the predator helped her craft to fight the alien. There's like a cool she staff with beats like, shit with an alien skull. That's that's right. Awesome. Yeah, she gets like an alien skull bracer, which is oh. actually pretty awesome. Um, you know, so uh, it's it, it concludes, and then we get a nice little stinger at the end, which was unfortunately followed up by Alien versus Predator Requiem, uh, which we we may chat about on this mm. one, but I don't know. Because uh, it's it's not really a failure piece in any way. It's mostly just a failure. But uh, we the the final stinger is the uh, the pred alien, right? The uh, an alien had infected our primary predator um, off screen. That just made and, me sad. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it just I was depressed. I was like, "Why'd you kill the special one? I liked him." Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I, if anything, that's kind of the thing is that the ending is a bit of a bummer and and all and you know all alien movies kind of are alien aliens is probably the movie that ends the best in terms of, of you know the franchises um but there's a tremendous loss in the original predator you know pretty much just dutch that survives out of his group and uh, you know the last shot of him in that movie is is him just like forlornly looking at the, the side of the helicopter like what am i supposed to do now right and, um you know so i think we we definitely have this kind of melancholy end where, you know, not even the predator gets to, you know, be victorious, right? He, he gets taken out as well. Uh, although we do get a, an echo of the predator two scene where the predators sort of acknowledge that our, our heroine is, is pretty awesome. And they sort of, you know, allow her to live, which is nice. <laughs> You're good. Um, you know, so you can also see, um, that, that they were setting this up for more, right? That we could continue on, right? That we would, we would, you know, take this story elsewhere, which again, they, they did attempt to do a few years later with zero budget and, and not really much in the way of direction, but, um, it's, uh, you know, in, in, at a time when blockbuster franchise filmmaking was really finding its feet, you know, this is a, a year after the, the Matrix movies had concluded, I guess, <clears throat> you know, so we've got, uh, you know they're they're trying intentionally to start a franchise, much like Anderson had with uh, uh, the Resident Evil movies, right? Which I mean, low key, you guys, that's like one of the most successful film franchises ever. Yeah, Those I mean, you, know, you, you don't have to like a em, lot of money, but you have to admit they they are successful. Yeah, and so I mean, you, uh, it almost feels like Anderson was brought in intentionally to to start something for them, and it, and it didn't work out, uh, not in the way they expected. So um, again, it's it's a fairly effective movie. Uh, it's not long, a uh, hundred minutes. Yeah. You know, so I mean, it's it's not, you know, it it earns its keep pretty well. Doesn't try to, to you know elongate things too long. But I would say even for a hundred minutes, at times this movie feels very long, and that can be a problem. Um, all right, so let's kind of jump into our our deep dive here, and let's let's talk a bit about the characters. Because one of the things that it gets maligned for, characters don't really go anywhere. So let's kind of go through and, and talk a bit about them. 
uh, and see what we think. So our, again, our main heroine uh, is Alexa Woods, played by uh, Sanaa Lathan, uh, who's gone on to some success in a variety of things. She had a couple of successful TV shows. Uh, and she's good. Like, I don't have any problems with Alexa Woods. Uh, in terms of character, or again, we establish her as a rock climber, so, you know, high danger level, high skill level to be successful at. And, uh, you know, that she leads expeditions, right? She's been to Everest, where she, we're told she lost her dad, and that he didn't make it back down. And it's this sort of the reason why she wants to make sure everybody can come home safe. Um, so I think we get a lot of uh, good characterization with her. I think it's acted well. Uh, she gets a little bit of a romance subplot with our archaeologist friend that kind of doesn't go anywhere. But, Which I also uh, liked. Know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the camp. I love I love a, a good movie. And I don't care how long it is. But I do struggle with action movies now that edge on this two on this you know, post two hour mark mm. where there's just so much time spent developing characters and then they end up being action or horror films and you have to let them watch those characters die. And I'm like, well, we spent so much time getting to know them. Now they're gone. Right. Whereas this film is, it's shorter and it's smaller, but I do still feel like I, I got to know enough about the characters in order to be sad when they died. Like, uh, for example, when um, Ewan Bremner dies, I actually thought mm -hmm. that was really sad because he was talking yeah, that about scene his was two the worst. kids. Yeah, um, I really thought, even back in the day, I really thought that this connection to him having a family back home was going to keep him alive. But then, you know, Tommy but, Flanagan yeah. says he also has a son, and mm -hmm. it was kind of at that moment I was like, neither of them's going to make it, are they? No. Mm -hmm. And then they don't. Um, by the way, I love Tommy Flanagan. I just, I don't ever stop loving that guy. Um, yeah, he actually had a really good turn in the third season of Westworld. Uh, he's, he's really solid in that. Um, I watched that a few weeks ago and he was, he was great. Like, it wasn't a huge part, but he knocked, he knocked it out he's, of part. He's never in really huge good. parts. He doesn't take on a yeah. huge part, but whatever part he has is just really well acted. Um, yeah. and, and the character that we mentioned earlier that he plays is Mark Verheiden. Uh, which you're going to hear you and Bremner yell that name a bunch of times. <laughs> Verheiden! Um, but, uh, of course, that is, is one of the Easter eggs in the film, and there are many. Um, but uh, Mark Verheiden, very famously, was one of the original writers on the... He started off on the Alien comics and then was brought in to do the Alien vs. Predator I comics have. as well. So that's really a kind of deep cut yes. for people who knew the Alien vs. Predator comics. Um, but it, just in general, I'm... With when it comes to action movies, I mean, a drama, you don't have any excuses. If I don't know who your characters are, that's bad. Yeah. But in sure. an action film, I'm willing to imagine more of the background. Like with Alexa mm -hmm. and, and her father and just her telling the story of them on Mount Rainier. You know, now I feel like that would come with a flashback sequence. And we would have multiple Probably. flashback sequences of her Probably. in this traumatic event of losing her father. Whereas yeah. she just tells us, it's very matter of fact. And it felt a little truer to that, that badass character that she wouldn't belabor it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, just, it's, this is the fact. This is who I am. For me, I think it goes back to... And again, one of the things about this movie that you can feel, from the characters to the scenario, everything is that 
Paul W. Sanderson is making this much like with Mortal Kombat as a fan. Yeah. Much like with Resident Evil as a fan. Like he loves these franchises as someone who has grown up with them and had them in his life. And he is making what amounts to a giant fan film, right? And and that comes with really good positives, some negatives as well. But you can feel that he's working within that framework and he is calling back to a very different time in filmmaking, right? Because let's let's look at Die Hard, right? Which Die Hard is the is now, in my opinion, the archetypal action film. Most of the time when you talk about like what is a good action movie, people are going to say Die Hard. And Die Hard works fantastically because it has so little character development. What do we know about John McClane in Die Hard? Cop. <laughs> he's a he's a cop. He a cop. He has he has marriage problems. That's right. He is a cop with marriage problems who has jet lag. And he hates to fly. Is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like we have and he says yippee ki yep. mother effort, right? Like so he obviously likes like old uh, John Wayne movies and stuff. But like that's it. And th- and that's all you need to know. And that's the thing is that I think a good action movie tells you what you need to know about your hero. One of my favorite moments in Die Hard is where we get the background that we need um, from, oh, dang, I always call him Carl Winslow. What's that actor's name? Oh, um. (laughs) It's not Carl Winslow. Reggie? Reginald Vell Johnson. Reginald, Reginald Vell Johnson. Johnson. You gotta yeah, picture Reginald the credits to Family Matters and you can just see him that's, rolling that's through right. Reginald Vell Johnson. That's right. Reginald Vell Johnson. Yes, sir. That little moment um, when he talks about how he shot the kid, that was just like one tiny little moment. Didn't come with yep. any extra information and it absolutely said everything we needed to know about that It establishes that exactly who he is. Yep. And and I think a good action script, that's what it should do. And I can feel that he's, do, he's trying to do that here with his leads. Um, you know, Ewan Bremner, we know he's a scientist, he has kids. That's it. Yeah. But that's that's all you need to know, right? Because ultimately he's going to die. <laughs> um, the archaeologist gets a little bit more, you know, he's passionate about this, but really he exists in the script to functionally establish that the predators may have been like the seed, like them coming here established what we now you know, consider human culture. You know, he's there to provide the basis for that and to, you know, he gets that great sequence about the hunter's moon, uh, you know, oh, we call it the hunter's moon, you know, that kind of thing, whatever. But, um, again, it, it's just what we need to know. There's, there's no additional time wasted on, you know, this stuff. And, and I think that that just harkens back to action movies of a different era. Um, we watched uh, this is a while back, but we watched Hobbs and Shaw. Not because I don't I don't really care for the Fast and Furious franchise. Not because I think they're bad. I just uh, there's only so much of them I can take. I think the last one I watched was uh, Fast Five, and and it was fine. Like, I was like, hey, that's you know. They I'll tell pulled you a, a secret. I've never <laughs> seen any of the Fast and Furious movies. And you know, I they are what they are. But we watched Hobbs and Shaw just because you know whatever, we didn't have anything else to do. And that movie is two, it is 137 minutes. <laughs> it is two hours and 15 minutes long oh. for an action movie with The Rock and Jason Statham. And by the end of it, you know, I was looking over at my wife and I'm like, 
why is this still going on? Like, why is why are these conflicts still unresolved? Like, this doesn't make sense. And uh, and you know, it's because again, modern action filmmaking, and even you could feel that starting at this time with like the Matrix, which again, the Matrix is an exception, right? The Matrix is an exception to the action movie rule. It is not the standard uh, by any stretch, and it shouldn't work. Like there are things in the Matrix, and and honestly, once you get to the sequels, you can see why they don't work. What are you talking about? The Matrix didn't have any sequels. <laughs> That's right. I, I forgot. Uh, it must have been the ones I invented in my mind. Yeah. But the original Matrix is is sort of the exception of that. But one of the reasons why it works is because Neo is a cipher character by design, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to know anything about him for the for the plot to function. And if anything. Yeah, like you shouldn't know anything about him. You're filling in all the pieces from yourself. Um, so we get more time to develop Trinity and Morpheus and, and some of the other you know sort of characters surrounding Neo because we don't need to know anything about him. But now, you know, in this one, it's it's a much more sort of 80s flavored action movie and you can feel them working for that, especially, you know, people uh, sort of undervalue um, the work done in Predator to establish character it's not as good uh not by any stretch but um it, it does a lot right those early sort of quick scenes of the team sort of being together which you know we've, we've referenced before ain't got no time to bleed and all that stuff really what they do is um establish those guys fairly well you know as a unit and, and by the time they start dying you, you feel something for them like oh man i, I like that you know i liked the guy with the big glasses he was nice and this is more in that vein, where it's it's just what you need to know to have just enough connection to care about what happens to them. And that's it. Right? There's nothing else. And, you know, again, we could argue whether or not that works, but uh, I think for the most part it's fine, you know, as long as you're willing to accept that limitation. Um, so we get Alexa Woods. Um, we get uh, Sebastian De Rosa, uh, played by Raul Bova. And uh, he's our, our archaeologist character, and, and really he's coming along because he wants funding for his archaeological projects. Wayland has promised him that money, uh, which again, I want to promote So he's along for that, and he's really just there as kind of advisor to help them sort of navigate, uh, you know, find any writing, which he does. He's able to interpret some of the writing, uh, which presumably is the predator language, or at least the culture that had been built up around them on Earth. And he interprets some of those elements for them and, and helps them sort of navigate. And I think he's fine. Uh, I, you know, he he sort of bounces off a little bit more. He doesn't uh, necessarily have a, a sort of lasting. He's not one of those guys that's going to like stick in your brain after the movie. Like, man, I really liked that guy. You know, he's no Hicks, right? But he's not really designed to be. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think again, we get a little bit of a romance between him and Alexa Woods, although it's very uh, sidelined. It's really not a, a focus. Uh, point at all i don't know what do you think of uh his character i i found myself expecting because i i saw this movie one time in 2004 and i was like well that sucked Mm -hmm. and i left the theater and i didn't see it again um so when i rewatched it i remembered the plot i remembered all of the major events but i didn't really remember much about individual people i expected him to be sleazy as soon as he started hitting on her and like there was a Mm, little bit of that that interaction starting i was like oh is he gonna be like the hey baby come back and hang out with me i'm the sex guy um 
I was so worried he was going to become some stereotypical sleazebag. Instead, right. he's, he seemed caring and, you know, passionate about archaeology and what he was doing. And the whole interest in her was innocent. It felt a lot more innocent than what other films tend to do with building kind of a, a romance between characters that happens just within the moment. Um, yeah. It seemed like it was more subtle than having him come out and be like, oh, well, why don't you come on an archaeological dig with me, my darling? Haha, <laughs> we can That's do right. lots of mountain climbing and Let then go show back you how to deep my this. tent. <laughs> Let me show you how deep this hole goes. Exactly. Like just, yeah. you know, stupid shit like that. But they didn't do that. Right. Which I appreciate. No. No, he ends up being, you know, he, he you know, there's a bunch of side characters because these, these groups all come together. And uh, so he's got like a research assistant or something that works with him that gets brought along as well. And he's like one of the early kills. Um, and uh, so, you know, you really get the sense that, you know, this guy, was, none of them were expecting what they find, which I think is kind of cool. Like, you know, there was no hint that this was going to happen even when they arrived and, and he really generally seems uh, you know, shocked by the events. He doesn't really know what to do with them. And if anything, I think it's, it's his death uh, at the, his, the predator kills him. Right. I'm pretty sure. Yes. And yeah, cause like they, they make the jump across the bridge to escape and then, um, you know, the predator kind of drags him off. And so I, I, again, I think one of the reasons why the, a lot of people don't, Oh, like the, the characters in this movie the was it it was the aliens that's right um one of the reasons why i think people don't like this is that most of the characters get really ignominious ends right like we don't get any characters you know like hudson he dies everybody hates it when hudson dies i hate it when hudson dies but hudson at least gets to go out it's that it's that hand With over the, the face it's whenever the alien's hand claps over his face i'm just yeah. like no don't you take him you know but he but Hudson's arc in that movie is he goes from being the scaredy cat who's constantly trying to run away to being the guy who like is trying to fight his way out. And and that's, it's a small thing, but it, it works. And in this one, I, I don't know if a lot of the characters get that treatment, right? A lot of them don't get, um, you know, an, a traditional arc, right? Um, you know, Alexa Woods does certainly like hers is the most developed in terms of going from, you know, this, the, sort of conservative person at the beginning to someone much more aggressive by the end. But uh, nobody, you know, a lot of people just don't get that, that treatment. And I think that that can be unsatisfying for sure. Um, and again, that, that could be part of the PG 13 stuff. Uh, a lot of, you know, once you start cutting those kinds of things from a movie like this, there's a lot of other things that have to go too. So it could be a result of that. But I think a lot of the characters just don't get a super fair treatment, at least the ones that we spend a lot of time with in the movie. Um, even our, our next major list of character, which of course is Charles Bishop Wayland. So at this point uh, in, a, in history, yes. uh, he's just Wayland, right? There is no um, uh, Yutani just yet, although there is a brief mention in the director's cut to uh, a meeting with Yutani at some point in the future, I think. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so uh, Wayland, thoughts? I love Lance Henriksen and anything that he does mm. in all the movies that mm -hmm. he's in. Um, I... I liked, because he sacrifices himself, doesn't he? 
Uh, to a certain extent, it's sort of again, it's 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 a little bit of a like why now kind of thing. Uh, basically, Wayland uh, is one of the ones with the group that ends up with the predator weapons, and so the predator is hunting them down. Uh, the predator scans him and realizes that he is is terminally ill, and then just sort of leaves him as like I'm, I'm not going to waste my time. And Wayland sort of you know throws something at him, and says don't don't turn your back on me, right? Like I'm I'm more important than that. And then the predator. You know, theoretically kills him and we kind of hear the results of it we don't see it and he dies off screen um but yeah he, he's kind of trying to occupy the predator so that's uh, alexa and uh, the archaeologist can get away you know there's a little bit of a suggestion that he found something not a reason to not a reason to live what am i trying to think of here he got some sort of meaning to his life by doing all of this he didn't necessarily get famous he didn't he didn't have you know this great discovery that would be attached to his name but he got to at least do something meaningful before mm. dying yeah yeah he, uh, you get the impression that he really thinks that this is uh, his chance to to make some kind of really significant cultural mark and he wants to do that um despite the fact that he is is aging and and ill uh, which he does kind of share. I think there was an attempt within the script to parallel that to um, Alexa's father, right? That you know he too maybe wasn't you know really in the right health to climb Everest, but he wanted to do it to be with his daughter. We do get that really nice line of the great delivery from Hendrickson saying, "The champagne." <laughs> yeah, because she tells the story about you know drinking champagne with her dad at the top of Everest, and then how he died on his way down, and and Waylon says, you know, well, what do you think? You know, he was remembering at the end, you know, the pain of, of what was happening to him or being able to drink champagne with his daughter. You know, this idea that an accomplishment will, you know, supplant pain if it is significant enough kind of thing. And it's a neat idea. And, and Henriksen's delivery is, is awesome. Like, he does a, a really great job with that. Um, but in general, I think Wayland is is sort of here for that connection to bishop which of course you know everybody's going to want because bishop's amazing and he's a great character but also so that we can see sort of the seeds of you know the wayland corporation that would eventually you know morph into this entity that would uh, give rise to uh, the rest of the alien franchise and you know Hendrickson's performance is great, as we said. Like he's he's pretty much great in everything he does, especially if he cares. Uh, I even uh, I guess we both played uh, Detroit. Oh yes. Uh, Beyond Human not too long ago, and he has a, a brief turn in there as a digital character where he's just awesome. Uh, like his his time in there is really fantastic. And so I, I think he has the potential to elevate just about anything. And I think he does here too. Like Wayland is is played pretty well. Um, I don't have too many issues with him uh, in general. And, and frankly, he sort of exits the film about halfway through. And uh, the rest of the characters kind of soldier on without him. But Now, I have to admit, putting it up against Peter Wayland, of mm -hmm. the two Waylands, I prefer mm -hmm. the understated version from Alien vs. Predator as opposed to the bloviating... Why the fuck are you here? Why are you still alive that we had in Prometheus? Yeah. Where I just um, kind of wondered, like, what is the point of all of that? Um, with this well, version of Wayland, I didn't have that question. No, no, it's very clear why Wayland is there. Like, it's established. Like, this guy is a corporate 
you know, he's, he's a, a corporate billionaire, right? Like, why would you put yourself in this situation? So they very plausibly came up with a, a feasible reason why this guy would go on this expedition when he totally doesn't have to, and he has underlings that can do all this stuff for him. Um, whereas, you know, Peter Wayland and Prometheus making this four-year trip to a planet where there might be nothing in stasis makes zero sense, right? I mean, uh, and it comes to nothing. Like, it's a late film reveal in Prometheus that basically amounts to nothing. Like, he could have just been there. What difference would it Well, be? I mean, by the time um, we meet him, our main character has been... She's had her abdomen sliced open and an alien taken out. Right, How which then no one... How excited about Guy Pierce now? <laughs> which no one comments on, which I think is hilarious. Like, literally no one comments on the fact that... I mean, I think one of them says, like, you've had a rough day or something like that. It's like, fuck. Okay. okay. <laughs> I just had yes. surgery. <laughs> glorious observation there. I guess we're not going to discuss the fact that there's a you know, face hugger running around this ship now. Uh, but anyway, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think... Uh, the characterization of Charles Bishop Wayland here as as this uh, this character it, it works well, and it, it's a nice tie back and an obvious tie back to uh, you know the previous movies in the Alien franchise with having Lance Hendrickson there. Uh, but it works; it works well. You know, no no real concerns for him. Um, and then, as we mentioned, uh, we've got Ewan Bremner, um, who you know his character again unfortunately doesn't really get much of an arc. Right, his arc is that he has children. Uh, which makes him sympathetic and not really much more, unfortunately. But uh, but he he works with the material he's got. He's constantly trying to take pictures of stuff and and messing with things, which again provides a bit of humor, uh, which a lot of people again still revolt against in Alien and Predator movies. When I don't really understand, uh, I think the Alien series when it took a downturn is when it lost its sense of humor, right? Because Aliens yeah. is, has got some tremendously funny lines. That's why that movie's so quotable. You know, what are we supposed to use? Harsh language? I mean, that's... Guess she don't like really... the cornbread either. <laughs> yeah, these are really good funny lines because directors of, of, of movies that have and, are, and tread upon tension know that you have to disperse it, right? You have to have characters who can disperse tension. And so I think it's Anderson doing the same uh, with not as much skill obviously like he is not as deft at it again but it, when you hold anybody up to the james cameron mirror they're not going to look so fair. great like it's just <laughs> not fair like cameron you know guys like cameron and fincher they're on another level like there there is a if there are tiers in filmmaking those dudes have have established their own tier and saying that that somebody else needs to be like that especially a guy like anderson who by all accounts is very workmanlike Right, like his approach is workmanlike. He is constantly sort of, you know, working behind the scenes and 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 moving through stuff very swiftly, very carefully. It's just it's not the same. And so, and it's funny um, we used to say that about uh, James Cameron, but yeah, somewhere, like he had that rep in the eighties. Somewhere around the Titanic tipping point, we started to say, well, maybe he can make movies. Yeah, that was his auteur tipping point. Or he wasn't just this guy making like really solid commercial cinema. Now he was making art. When he had been doing that all along, like he had been making art all along, he was just making it in genre films. And you know, no one in Hollywood cares about genre films. No, uh, they care about them in the fact they make them the most of their money. But no one considers them legitimate filmmaking even today. 
about the um, only time that we let that happen as far as like the academy goes i would say is lord of the rings that was like a lord throwback the yeah. to the ben-hur days of filmmaking where we were like the biggest and best picture shall win um but we don't it's, it's just not like that anymore no i mean the closest we've had is black panther um did pretty well at its oscar turn um you know sort of being recognized but I really think that more than anything, that's why the you know, the Academy changed its rules to expand, is so they could you know put their little golden wand down on a genre film and not have to actually give it much attention. Um, but you know, again, I, I think that within the confines of what Anderson is is being asked to do in this film, I think he's he's working pretty well. But Brimner definitely doesn't get a lot here. Um, you know, I think he gets a little bit with Verheiden uh, as a character when they're down in the tunnels, which, of course, is a callback to the original Alien and Dallas sort of going through the, the ventilation system and everything. Like, there's definitely some of those things going on there. We get a little bit more where he's saying, like, we're going to make it through this, we're going to be okay, and then, of course, they aren't. But, um, you know, again, I, I, in terms of the, the running time of the film, he's not going to devote a ton to him. And if anything, if he had given him much more... I would think that his end would make no sense whatsoever, right? Like already, I feel like he got way more screen time than a character who comes to his end would typically get. Uh, you know, it's kind of like Veronica Cartwright in the original Alien. You know, she gets a ton of screen time and a ton of interaction, and then basically just gets wiped off the map. She dies with, in the most horrible way. Yeah, I mean, like I she gets the worst. She gets death, the most horrific yeah. death. And so, you know, I I think it's kind of that situation, but. You know, I, the characters are weak, I mean, in, in a broad sense, but ultimately I think uh, it's enough, right? There's enough here for you to care about what happens to them, uh, to feel some tension when, you know, either their death is imminent or has, is, is, you know, in occurrence. Like, you're like, oh, you know, I don't want that guy to die. And that is enough, right? Again, it's not aliens, but if we hold everything up to aliens, most movies are going to fail. Yeah. So um, I'm kind of okay with it. And really, that's that's most of them. Again, uh, Verheiden and uh, Maxwell Stafford are people who work for Wayland's security team. <clears throat> uh, of course, uh, Verheiden is played by Tommy Flanagan, longtime you know henchman in movies. Like he is the henchman guy. Uh, he he's sort of got a prominent facial scar that he has has worked to his advantage over the years. And then uh, Colin Salmon Which, had a previous relationship. That uh, facial scar <clears throat> is is real. Mm -hmm. That is a yeah. that's that was given to him by a gang, mm -hmm. and that really happened to his face. And he has built a career out of looking awesome. <laughs> yeah, like he is. He has worked it to his advantage, no doubt. <clears throat> uh, and then, of course, Colin Salmon, uh, who plays Maxwell Stafford. Uh, Anderson had a previous relationship with him from Resident Evil, where he played the the number one character, mm -hmm. the main sort of lead. Uh, lead soldier if you want or umbrella soldier in that movie um and he shows up in a lot of anderson films like he, they obviously enjoy working with each other um but uh so they're dispensed fairly early uh in the process but you know sort of fulfill their roles they're the workman like parts you know much like in a predator film where you've got you know, it's kind of what Bill Paxton was in Predator 2. You know, you, you know enough about him to care a little bit, but then, you know, he's going to get dispensed at some point in the, the process of the film being and I do, put together. I have to question why we think that 
action movies should give us more in terms of character development because they're really trying to balance a lot of different elements. They're trying mm-hmm. to balance action, humor, a little bit of horror in this case because the aliens always bring an element of horror with them and then sort of character drama. And that's a lot of plates to spin. Mm-hmm. And they can't yeah, and, give yeah. equal attention and equal time to all of those. And I I guess it it just it doesn't make sense that that's the complaint of the film. It's like, well, what did you expect? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think spinning plates is a really good way to describe what this movie is and how this movie works. Um, because that is exactly what they are doing, is spinning plates, right? Because not only do you have all these human characters that you've got to develop so that they, they mean something when they die, you also have three Predator characters, and they do try to give them some distinction, at least you know, early, and then, of course, we sort of settle on a single hero Predator, uh, which is just colloquially referred to as Scar, since he gets a scar on his helmet. Uh, and we even get a hero alien uh, called Grid, uh, which, of course, is an alien that survives one of the Predator uh, t- self-tightening nets and gets a grid pattern on his, his head. So, you know, we've, we've even got some hero alien and Predator characters that we need to, to have some scenes devoted to. And then, of course, the combat between these characters, which uh, is a, a very serious consideration uh, because we had never seen combat between these two characters oh, before and boy is it awesome and it's it's not bad i mean like i can't imagine uh the the logistical problems in throwing basically a super fast super agile character that can climb on walls and jump really far and whip you with a tail with you know the predator was never established as being quick Right. right. Um, they can certainly move and climb and jump and do whatever, but they've always been these kind of big lumbering characters uh, played by you know, sort of incredibly impressive uh, you know, physical specimens. Right. Uh, the original uh, Predator actually wasn't like seven foot three or something like just huge. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like we've got a lot of plates that are spinning here and and i think that anderson is doing his best to juggle them within very serious constraints this feels like a movie that had very specific requirements from the studio that they wanted to see and anderson unlike some of your more quote-unquote auteur directors he's going to try and do that right Mm -hmm. he's the guy that's going to try and make the movie that you want him to make uh He's. I think he has a lot of artistic integrity. Um, I think he does try to do things in a way that, that fits his style and his particular wants and wishes. But at the end of the day, I think he understands that he's working for a studio and he's going to do what he's asked to do. Um, and I think other projects that he's done sort of back that up. Um, so, you know, with the, the Predator... Um, and, and the alien parts, I, I think we are, you know, sort of seeing some interesting things. But, you know, the characters of the Predator actually get... This was really the first time that I can remember where the Predators and their culture, at least in films, was truly explored, right? Where we tried to actually understand. Like, it had been done in the comics and stuff, but we'd never really seen that beyond the, the tag at the end of Predator 2, where we get the idea that they're hunters and they collect their trophies. And the and pregnant lady. Keep them in the ship. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the pregnant lady and not wanting to kill that. Um, you know, like, we didn't really have much development of how the predator culture worked. And so we really get to see that for the first time in this movie. 
with uh, you know the hunting in groups and and you know ideas that have come back in later predator films now right predators we really see the same basic setup of uh, three predators being dropped into a hunting ground to go and, and do their thing right. and um you know so i think really we we got some cool some cool things there that that kind of worked too um all right so i mean in terms of characters we don't really have anybody else there's a, a bunch of side characters um who are a lot of them are dispensed during the initial chestburster scene they establish there's a sacrificial chamber where the alien eggs from the queen which is presumably down in the bowels of this this temple are deposited and then sacrificial individuals in the past would lay there and then be infected and then uh, aliens would burst forth for the predators to hunt right i think it's six if I'm not mistaken, there were six people in there. I think there wind up being a few more, but there's like it's like a, a grid of six. I think it was supposed to, because there was like a really nice top-down shot of it, and I think they were trying to mirror kind of the, the uh, hypersleep pod setup from the original Alien. It kind of has that arrangement to it. That's another thing about this this movie that I enjoyed, is the the callbacks to Alien and to Predator were not overdone. No, I mean they're there if you want to find them for sure, but it's not it's not constantly slapping you in the face. It's not like I see franchise. what we did there. Mm -hmm. Whereas lots of other entries into the Alien and especially Alien, but Alien and Predator franchises are guilty of just disgusting displays of of fanboyism, where it's like, okay, I get it, you know, I love Aliens too, but calm down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think, you know, Anderson is making this as a fanboy. He absolutely is. But I think at this point, he had worked enough with, you know, sort of previously established material, both Mortal Kombat and, and Resident Evil, to kind of know how to walk that line, right? To have the references in there, to have the elements that fans, quote-unquote, are going to look at me like, oh, cool. But not necessarily go super overboard, you know, with it. And I think we see that here, too. Like, I, I, I was not taken out of the film because that's that's where the easter egg breaks for me if the easter egg takes me out of the flow of the movie and now all i'm doing is paying attention to the easter egg then you've, you've kind of messed up yeah um you know it's it's more of like a repeat viewing thing where you come to it and say like ah neat now i see that um you know and there are little things in there there's like um oh i think in that sacrificial chamber there's like a little alien symbol on the the stuff and it, it like references the uh poster for alien three because it was that little curled up mm -hmm. you know sort of fetal alien and the the logo was designed to sort of look like that just as a callback you know so you can see they're treading within that world but not necessarily going like oh, here's all this alien and predator stuff well and even well I'll, I'll, I, let me give you one reference sure. so did you see the predator like the new one no okay um there is a scene in The Predator, where they're in some kind of research facility where they've been studying predators. <laughs> and on the wall, in one of the hallways that lead to their research room, is the staff and bracer from this movie. What? Yeah, just hang in there, right? Why? <laughs> exactly. Because that is an Easter egg executed wrong. Would she right. just show there up is, and give it to him? Like, here, I think I might want to have, dude. Pre <laughs> presumably they confiscated it because it's evidence of 
alien, whatever. <coughs> it exists to be an Easter egg, but it is so blatant, so obvious, and so out of place that it, it all it did was take me right out of the film. And now I'm like, why is that there? I... Is she in this movie? Are we going to see her? Like, what's going on? And and that's that to me is an Easter egg that, okay, fine, cool, glad it's there, but it didn't function, right? Whereas this movie doesn't have as many of those it, for me. It doesn't do that. I was actually waiting for it to do that because even, again, Prometheus did it. It has one of my most hated Easter eggs of all time. And it's really just a throwback to a line and the way the line is delivered. It drives me insane. It just it rips the movie apart every time I'm watching it. And it's the part where scientist man yells, we are leaving. I get so <laughs> irrationally angry. Yeah. I'm like, why did he say it like that? He said it just right. like they did in Aliens. And there's a fucking point. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's ugh. like I said, this one has, you know, I mean, let's because we also have to acknowledge that this is post. Um, well, it's kind of right in the middle of the Star Wars prequels coming out because episode three would have been the next year. But, like, it is really easy to forget that the prequels kicked off this, like, we got to make a prequel. Like, yeah. we got to make something that happened before the other stuff. Everybody wants And then we got to show how, where did all this stuff come from, right? Well, you see, Boba Fett, he was a little kid, right? And like, it's just Nobody that, that Patton Oswalt. <laughs> Nobody likes little kids. I don't care where the things that I like came from. <laughs> right? There was that whole reaction because, like, it kicked off prequel, prequel craziness. And, and we get a little bit of that here, if we're being honest. Like, it, it does happen. And um, the, um, the characters are, are, are sort of in that space where they are providing us with background. But beyond that, it's, it's not egregious, right? It's not completely over the top. And um, I, I think that it's, it's good, right? Because they could have gone that direction where just everything is a reference, a reference, a reference, a reference, a reference. And, and it, it doesn't fall to that what it what it really is is more like we're looking at the archetypal pieces of this these franchises like the things that need to be there and we're putting those things there right mm -hmm. we, do we need a strong female lead yes we need a strong female lead um do we need a scene where a predator is, is healing themselves after being in battle yes uh do we need a you know small love interest between our our lead heroine and another character that doesn't go anywhere yes uh, you know, so like they're they're more just looking at the bigger pieces of the franchise that have been successful and popular in the past, and then kind of remixing those uh, into this this sort of new arrangement or semi new arrangement. And um, you know, I think that that's that's okay. Like it, it doesn't feel bad, um, and it's not so obvious and blatant that you get lost in the references instead of what the movie's actually trying to do. Right, so um, moving on. So we've discussed characters, and actually we've discussed a lot of the plot as far as the the main structure of the film. But really, it is uh, kind of a chase movie, mm -hmm. right? Like once the the predators enter the scene, it becomes the humans attempting to escape, and the predators and the alien uh, aliens uh, stalking them. Uh, but really, it, you do get that cool sense. That it is a bunch of humans who are really outmatched, trapped in the middle of what's going on. Because, you know, these aren't colonial marines, right? We don't have pulse rifles right. and 
uh, and stuff with these characters. Like, we don't have any of that. And these characters are still trying to, um, to survive in a situation that they can't control. And so the humans, I, I think that may be another issue that a lot of people have, is that the humans, even though we spend a lot of time with them, they have very little agency in the film up until the very end. Um, you know, I, I half expected them to kind of like pseudo figure out how to use one of the predator weapons and then maybe sort of put up a stand with that. I'm so glad. Uh, but that didn't. doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, because again, you haven't seen the predator, but that's exactly what happens in the predator, and it's kind of lame. Like it doesn't really work. Um, and so I, I'm glad they didn't, but it really felt like they were they could have gone that direction if they wanted to. But one of the things that the comics always did, and I, I have to believe that Anderson had familiarized himself with the comics pretty significantly, um, that the, the humans always feel trapped in the middle between these two basically impossible forces. Right? Well, they the just whole, cannot. There's very little they can do. The whole idea of like we're not alone in the universe is we're not as big and important as we thought we were. There are much mm. bigger and worse, scarier things that can absolutely snuff us out if they want to. Right. And it, it basically just sets up this incredible vulnerability, right? And I don't think a lot of audiences liked feeling that vulnerable, right? Like there, there was really nothing that they could do. Now, of course, that turns at the end. Uh, you know, if we're talking in terms of plot, uh, most of the human characters are killed, uh, pretty much all of them by the end of the film, and uh, Alexa Woods is the last you know, person standing, and she sort of proves herself to Scar, the, the sort of lead predator, and he winds up you know, cobbling together some weapons for her, they take down some aliens, then make their way to the surface, and that's where the final conflict between uh, them and the alien queen takes place, but she sort of earns his respect, and um, you know, so she, at the end, gets some agency, she gets the ability to, to fight back using some of this improvised weaponry, and that ends up being really cool. And, you know, for a film that basically told us for 90 minutes or so that humans were incapable of surviving in this situation, now we have someone who can. And that's kind of a neat, that's kind of, that's a kind of badass turn, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it works really well. And if anything, I think that final sequence and that final battle actually is, is one of the strongest components of the film. Uh, you know, sort of bad early 2000s. Well, we don't see her doing anything yeah. unbelievable once she is given those weapons we see her behaving very much like she did with you know the improvised weapons they had before mm -hmm. it's not like she yeah. suddenly becomes wonder woman or something once she has an alien skull on her arm like that doesn't that doesn't change that much and so I, I i like that the movie didn't make it over the top like i am one of the predator now um, yeah, no, I, and I mean, the first time we see this woman, she's she's wielding dual ice axes as she's climbing the side of a mountain, so like, the, it is not implausible at all that she would be completely capable of, of using these weapons to defend herself. Like, that makes a ton of sense. And, and it works. Like, I, I think it's a fun sequence. Uh, it's neat. You know, if anything, it's kind of, it's, it's definitely evoking the end of Predator 2, where, you know, the, the Predator hands off the, the pistol to the, um, 
to Danny Glover's character and and you know he's like hey you know you done good kid right <laughs> you killed one of us great job um you know it's definitely that but coming at a different angle like they feel rather than like hey you you took one of us down that makes you you know a hunter like we are so here's you know have your trophy this feels more like hey we're allies now like we were we're the same and that's kind of neat that's kind of it's cool the ultimate bro nod from the predator to the human yeah, exactly yeah the, the predator saying hey man you're cool i like you um which is neat um i think that's uh i, I don't know that sequence works well for me i i, I think it's it's fine and i think it, it does create a nice a nice moment to to cap off the film i agree but um so in terms of you know sort of other elements here this wasn't something that came up a bunch, but I did want to talk about it a bit, and that is is the production design of this movie. Uh, I have my issues with Anderson's production design, uh, mostly with his lighting. Uh, I think it's kind of flat. I don't think he does a lot of stuff. But production design here, I mean, basically we have, uh, it's almost all set on studio stages uh, so that they can have control. The temple itself is interesting, but I, I never really got a sense of its actual geography like I, I never really understood uh even when he pulls back he does the resident evil thing where he shows you like the holographic map and then you zoom in it's still the the temple never really felt real to me like the space never felt consistent um it was very painted styrofoam it, it had a yeah it had a fake look to it um but yeah i'm not i'm not overly bothered by bad props i mean the rest of the props in the film were actually pretty good but the lighting was definitely a problem it just kind of made everything look really drab like you would think discovering a giant temple thousands of feet below the ice there would be a bit more drama in the reveal sure. of the temple and then when they walked up to it it just it didn't it didn't have a magic moment <laughs> Yeah, and you never really got a sense of its scale. Um, you know, we get to see, uh, I guess a flat. I guess it's a flashback. Like one of the characters is describing what's going on, and we see like the a, a previous temple or another temple. I mean, I presume it wasn't the one that they're in because it gets exploded, but um, where like a hunt had gone bad, and there were just thousands of aliens. And so, as the you know the the, the predator self destruct that you know again we had seen in, in the original predator. They trigger one of those, but it's like a huge nuclear bomb, and it just wipes everything out because the aliens can't get loose and that kind of thing. So we we had seen, you know, that this is huge, right? Like the scale is massive, and and then when we actually see this temple, it's it's kind of much more sedate. And there are a lot of tiny rooms inside. None of the rooms are very big. Yeah, yeah. All all of the the individual rooms, like you never get that moment from the original alien when they walk in and find. I guess now we can call him the engineer. No, we cannot. We uh, call him the space jockey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we find this space jockey sitting in the navigational uh, array, and and you know Ridley Scott puts his son in a spacesuit and sticks him next to it to make it look like it's just huge, right? We don't really get that moment of scale. Like everything is very small. It's hallways, uh, a lot of hallways, um, you know, which are easy to manage, easy to stage stuff in. So, I mean, again, I, for, for a guy like Anderson, who, again, is quite workmanlike, like, he gets the job done. He's not necessarily trying to be, I'm not going to say he's not an artist. Everybody who makes a film and, and goes through this pain, I think, is an artist. But 
um, it's it's just not done in a way that is evocative. It of, seems like yeah. the small spaces and the hallways are kind of the auto tension generator that mm-hmm. a lot yeah. of action directors will. They kind of just, fall back on. Yeah, yeah, they'll fall back to the the tight spaces to make you feel, you know, closed in, like something's coming for you. But in this one, it would have been nicer to have, I don't know, like some huge chamber on the inside where there could have been more of a showdown. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the queen chamber, I guess, is shown as being a little bit big, um, but nothing happens in there, <laughs> right? Like the queen sort of rises out of her, her you know, frozen tomb. And and then that's it. You know, we get some backlighting, uh, we get some steam, and, and that's that's it. That's the end. There's a couple of like stairway sets that are kind of big, but the uh, if anything, it's one of the problems that I have with Alien Three and Alien Four as well is that they're they're set in these very small locations, and and there's no real sense of scale, right? Like Aliens has a similar problem. You're on LV four twenty six. You're in these little hallways, these little rooms, but then. You also get those sequences where it's like, you know, oh, the, the, the APC crash outside of the, you know, reactor and the, re- the reactors themselves being these massive, just gargantuan, terraforming devices that, you know, they dwarf and everything. And the director's cut also gives you all of that lead up with um, the expedition finding the original ship mm-hmm. and you, you see, yeah, like, the experience. scale of the planet, you see the scale of the ship itself and you're sort of reminded of things from the first film. I don't know. I, again, you know, it's, it's unfair to say be more like James Cameron, but he did do a lot to counteract that. Most of the film would be in some hallways. He did as much right. as he I mean, could. Totally. And, and that was probably in and of itself a response to the original alien which was a haunted house movie in space. So again, it's tight corridors, you know, so he wanted to to, space truckers getting murdered. And so, I mean, you know, the production design and overall design of this movie, I don't think is terrible, but it's certainly a bit lackluster, especially after, you know, because the alien franchise, especially less, less so predator, but the alien franchise, especially is just one of the things it's known for. Like one of its greatest qualities is, fantastic production design on the part of most of them even you know if even alien 3 with all of its small and tight hallways it it looks good it is dripping with literally in most cases dripping with atmosphere and and you know dark corners for things to hide in and this just doesn't have that it also again, helps think, that know. alien 3 had some of the best lighting since aliens actually yeah best lighting and and best cinematography like a lot of people forget that uh fincher i mean it was his first movie but uh, he worked at least as long as he could with jordan cronenweth as his uh cinematographer for the first few for a few weeks maybe first few months of that shoot and cronenweth is one of the greatest Mm -hmm. cinematographers of his era Mm -hmm. and and fincher learned from him and and lighting setups and and the way that they approached lighting in that movie were fantastic. Uh, Junet, uh, with Alien Resurrection, of course, if things go down a hill a little bit, it's very brown. You know, it's very that, that sort of like sickly brown it's that you see in pretty much all his sickly stuff. Sickly brown with green. It's yeah, it's brown and green. Brown it's just a green. bad it's color palette. Why man. brown and green? It's like a. Whereas this one really good. It's like a really bad like LED setup on somebody's computer. It's like why would you pick that? It's just so ugly. 
Yeah, like you co- you just color time this movie all wrong. Like it just feels it doesn't it and it doesn't do anything to increase or improve mood at all. Like it's it's just a weird choice. Whereas this one, the predominant color scheme is is gray, mm-hmm. which is its problem. Like apart from the uniforms, and it's story justified. I mean, it's a temple. It's made out of rock, whatever. Um, but apart from the character uniforms, which vary from gray to yellow to red, and there might be a blue in there somewhere, um, which again, it's safety gear, so you're supposed to be brightly colored, but that's the only color in the movie. Like it's, that's it, you know, because the aliens are black and the predators are silver. Well, and I guess... <laughs> so, I mean, it, you know, it's I just was, a bit flat, you know? What I was thinking before with it being under the ice is ice is so beautiful. You have True. a lot of things you can interesting things you can do with lighting, um, refraction, color. Yeah. You know, you can even you can take things to the blue end of the spectrum and make them a little more mysterious. Like if you would have just kind of leaned on the location a little bit, but it felt like okay, now we're under the ice, so forget about the ice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it, it. Once they're down in the temple, like there is absolutely no indication that they are. What it's supposed to be like two miles under the yeah, it's like under 2, the ice or something. Feet? Yeah, like a it's like some crazy depth, and it's all forgotten. Like it's it's lit normally. Like there's just light sources everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just it doesn't it doesn't hang. And I think even if if you're not like a an audience member who's especially keen on paying attention to that stuff, you still just kind of visually pick up on like this is this kind of just doesn't look right. You know, this is not what I would expect it to be like. It, it's almost like they should have had it be like you know there was a lightning strike or something and it cracked open a mountain and here's this temple that was buried in it or something. Yeah, or, it, that or that Wayland seems more invents, plausible. Or Wayland uses all of his money to you know bring tremendous amounts of lighting equipment so that they can see this and photograph it or something like that you know if that becomes a big focus i don't know i just it would have been nice if they had celebrated the location a little bit more yeah i mean and they've even got a story justification that they could have run with that as the predators arrive you know as they get as they come back they they presumably kind of turn the temple on like that's kind of what they sensed was that the predators had arrived, and so everything inside the temple is firing up, and very, you know, the queen chamber is turning on. There's like fire down there for some reason. I don't know why they would need fire to light in the background to, to you know, deactivate some kind of stasis chamber. But you know, like the, it could have been some kind of system that the predators themselves, um, you know, had and had initiated. So. Uh, again, there was lots of things they could have done with it that they just kind of let lie. Uh, and again, it could have been a time consideration. It could have been something else. But, um, you know, ultimately it just doesn't, it doesn't feel like a real space. Right. You know, like you can tell that it's it's manufactured. And and that is is a failing of the film for sure because without that sense of, we're already dealing with these incredibly heightened moments of reality, right? Space aliens fighting each other. So we need that grounding, right? We we've got to have it feel like a plausible space, and it just it it never really does, not for me anyway. I agree. Um, so I mean, in terms of the production design, it's it's fairly typical Anderson, if we're being honest. If we look back at his his you know body of work, it feels like a Paul Anderson movie, if you can say that, because I don't know if he has a significant enough style. To say like, oh, that's an Anderson shot. Like it's not really that. 
but it does feel like one of his movies in terms of its pacing. And there were layout. several moments where I was watching and I was like, wow, this, this really does fit in with the rest of his catalog very well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But in terms of a movie, I think that demonstrates his look, it's, it's going to be Event Horizon. That's, that's yeah. his look. Yeah, I think so. And if anything, I think this movie would benefit from a little bit more Event Horizon. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's it's his signature film. I guess we can get into that a little bit here. Uh, we'll probably address it at some point on the podcast because it, it too, was a failure. Uh, if anything, that may have been the film that taught Anderson the lessons that turned him into the director he is today because I think he really did swing for the fences with Event Horizon and then it, it kind of didn't go anywhere. And he wound up, he wound up fighting with the studio over Final Cut and uh, having to make a significant number of changes to obtain uh, ratings. And, um, but Event Horizon is, is outside of the Alien franchise, right? Outside of some of these franchises that he's playing in here, it, it may be one of the better sci-fi horror films ever made. It's um, my favorite. I've only seen a few films that come as close to everything that I want in a horror film. Because mm-hmm. um, I love science fiction. I prefer science fiction horror films. It had... It kind of pushed things a little bit further than some of the other sci-fi horror films. Like, another one I hold up against it all the time is, is Sunshine. Uh, yeah. Danny Boyle. Alex Garland. Alex Garland, who's so amazing. And honestly, at this point, Alex Garland's one of the few guys who's still making movies in that genre. I mean, Annihilation, I mean, you could, I would argue that Annihilation has one of the most horrific scenes in definitely sci-fi horror, but maybe just horror in general. Um, And and I'm pretty sure you know the scene I'm talking Mm -hmm. about, but but, uh, Annihilation is, if anything, Garland is one of the few directors and writers who is carrying this torch right who was trying to keep that genre of mixing sci-fi elements sci-fi story content sci-fi you know future looking uh, you know and, and trying to see where we might be headed if something happens to us but i won't lie i feel horror. like a lot of his work the part of the way was paved by movies like event horizon because oh, sure. it yeah. it challenged a lot i mean i don't think anybody knew what to do with that movie and that's why it did poorly Oh yeah, I mean, at the time it came out, I mean, I can't think of of anything. Maybe some B movie stuff. I mean, there were definitely there were horror franchises that had tried to go to space. I mean, they're gonna sure. be wrong. Uh, you know, there are. I have a sort of unreasonable affection for Hellraiser four. I don't know why. Uh, it's a terrible film, but I, I still enjoy it. They're all terrible. But, you know, it's Hellraiser in space, of course, with very famously Jason 10, uh, Jason X, uh, Jason in space. Uh, you know, so, I mean, we had the sort of big horror franchises try to do their sci-fi thing. But Event Horizon, and, and I'll go ahead and say, if, if you've never seen Event Horizon, it is worth a watch. Like, we're going to talk about it uh, in the very near future. That's going to be like a four-hour episode special. If we yeah, we're going to talk about that for a bunch. We may just need to do a commentary track for that <laughs> one because, man... That movie, aside from the fact that, you know, our personal history with it and how we saw it, you know, kind of going to the theater, not really knowing what it was. I I remember pretty clearly there was an Entertainment Tonight back when that was a thing. There was an Entertainment Tonight 
story on it uh, about eight months before it came out. And I remember it was, it was primarily an interview with Lawrence Fishburne, who at that point was not a star yeah. at all. Um, he, you know, he had had his his you know star turns in, in some some pretty big films, um, but was not you know considered like an A list Hollywood actor at that. He point. wasn't Morpheus yet. <laughs> no, no, we're still like two years away from that, or a year away from that. And I just remember him. He was sitting on set, and it was typical. You know, I'm in my little director chair thing, and I'm talking to the the interviewer. And I just remember him saying, like, I've never made anything like this before. And um, there are days when I go home that I'm, I'm, I'm really freaked out, and I don't really know what to do with that. I'm sure somebody could dig that, that up. I may try and find it. But, um, you know, and, and that was, was Anderson kind of pushing the boundaries of, of horror in general. Like, Event Horizon is a horrific film, and that was after tremendous cuts to content, which uh, they had to make in order to just not get an X rating. Um, and, and some would say that it, it goes a little Hellraiser at the end, uh, sure. But I, I think it's way. it's earned, right? Like, it's not just a, a hard shift. Like, you kind of feel the build to that. But um, it is a straight-up horror film. The sci-fi elements work. Um, it, is, it is, as far as I know, it is the originator of the now standard, if somebody is trying to explain travel through a wormhole, uh, scene. Yeah, right. Put the, the two pieces the, of paper together. Two pieces of paper, uh, put a pencil through it, you know, me, dots. That's you know, Vanessa go and that's mine. <laughs> um, you know, like, but that explanation I've literally seen in now at least half a dozen films when they're trying to explain wormhole travel. Interstellar <laughs> used the exact same thing because it was it was a well written film. I want to say that uh, Event Horizon was uh, uh, David Peoples' script, yeah. who Anderson had worked with before because the other film we need to talk about. Soldier, uh, because Soldier is awesome. Yeah, and no one has seen that movie, but Soldier is great. It's Kurt um, Russell. It's it is Kurt Russell and Jason Scott Lee. That is the thing that everybody forgets about. I mean, Jason Scott Lee, who eventually would play Bruce Lee. Um. Uh, he might have even done that at this point. I'm trying to remember when Enter the Dragon came out. He might have had, had that on his his credits by the time they made Soldier. But Soldier is awesome. It's another completely forgotten Paul W. Sanderson movie where he was swinging for the fences. Great science fiction concept. Executed fairly well within the budgetary restraints that they were dealing with. Um, and a, another David Peoples script, of course. And David Peoples uh, is best known for writing Blade Runner. So... Um, like I, I think Anderson, when given the right material, can do truly, truly great things. And um, and I think Alien versus Predator should be moved way up. No, in I was the wrong. Ranks. It was Philip Eisner. I got that wrong. Uh, different guy. So Peoples wrote the Soldier script. Does Philip Eisner the wrote the Horizon? But still, um, um, and I, I just think Alien versus Predator should be moved way up in in the Paul W. S. Anderson catalog. That like, if you're going to watch his movies, you should watch this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at least to see to see a slightly subtle take on the Alien franchise, whereas not a lot of people approach that franchise with any subtlety anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you know, Alien movies in general, just about aliens, lend themselves to subtlety. But there's a way to make a movie without it being. Alien Resurrection. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
Definitely. <laughs> I think the aliens, um, and I guess let's just jump into it. Another sort of thing that I often hear maligned against this film is its representation of the predator, um, or predators in this case. Um, they are huge in this movie. Yeah. Uh, they are so big. Um, they, they tower, tower over everyone else. And and some people took issue with that because the the predators have always been big again, you know, played by actors who are you know seven feet tall or so, but they've all been a little bit lithe, right? Usually played by by sort of you know thinner actors who who you know these act these guys are stunt dudes, right? And they are massive uh, with all of the predator stuff on top of that. And so a lot of people feel that they're a bit too lumbery in this movie. Uh, they don't quite move fast enough they're kind of slow uh and basically everything on the predators got amped up right it was sort of like just the the spinal tap turn the dial to 11 on the predators uh their their blades their wrist blades are like four feet long uh and in the director's cut the unrated version you know that there's several scenes where they just like straight up impale dudes and they're hanging on them you know Whereas they were they were always intimidating in the previous predator movies but in this one they are just like exaggerated in the extreme um, I don't think we ever, do we see, uh, he takes his helmet off at the end, doesn't he? Um, the predator, mm-hmm. uh, but we don't really see the, much of the predator faces. They're always in their helmets, we get two uh, which some people really didn't like. really good, like, predator face shots, which I, I don't really want to see their faces because I'm, su- I feel like I'm supposed to sympathize with them in this movie and seeing their faces mm-hmm. makes me sympathize with them less because they're Yeah, horrifying. for sure. Definitely. Um, have you ever heard the story of where the the mandible face came from? James Cameron have you ever heard on an that? airplane. That's that's like absolutely right. Like mandibles. <laughs> we're bringing it back to James Cameron again, but uh, supposedly, like the the entire concept of the Predator's face is is another James Cameron joint. So you guys can, can enjoy that if you want. If you didn't know that little piece of trivia. Um. So, you know, as we come to the end of the film, you know, again, two of the Predators have dispensed almost right away, right? So you can tell that they had not spent a ton of time on their design. They look kind of samey. But Scar gets uh, a decent amount of, of screen time in this one quite a bit. And so his suit feels a little bit more bespoke, feels a little bit more carefully considered. Um, you know, it, it's still very evocative of the Predator. You know, we get the, the fishnet all over the exposed areas. The helmet is very traditional. Uh, the dreads. I mean, it's 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 a predator. Like I, I don't really understand why the predators, in terms of their production design, get so much hate in this movie. Like I said, I do understand. We, I think the real problem is that we just see them more. Like in, I was watching Predator Two not too long ago, and like you, you don't see the predator in that movie. Like it is so rare, and if you do, it's usually his invisibility effect. Uh, which, again, they did a lot in this movie to try and sort of firm up what that might look like with modern technology, and I think most of it works. In the original uh, there's that Predator, really great... you barely see uh, him there's at a... all. Go ahead. Well, the original Predator, you barely see him at all. Yeah, no, I mean, really not until that last fight with Arnold do you finally get a good look at what the Predator is. Um, you know, you even get that really good scene in this one where a uh, dude gets stabbed with the uh, staff, and then he sort of like uncloaks with the staff in the guy and sort of pulls back, which I think is a really nice looking shot. One of the better special effects shots in the movie for sure. But, uh, you know, the Predator, I I think I'm fine with their design. I think it looks okay. Uh, Again, I think it's more just a, the technology to create the suits at advance. They're able to do a little bit more with, um, 
definitely with the surfaces and the textures, right? Because if you watch the, the older Predator movies in, in high def now, you can kind of see that it's, it's mm. you know, it, there's some chintzy stuff there. I think that's uh, some a stuff, flashlight. You know, <laughs> you know there's, there's, there's considerations. You know, they're still very nice. It's still all Stan Winston, you know, design, so it's great. Which I guess we should say that the, this was a shift, right? This was not uh, Stan Winston Studios. I think they were still involved. But most of the special effects in this film were um, the uh, amalgamated design. So it was uh, Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff uh, did a lot of it because uh, they had been involved on the Alien side since Alien Three, right? They've sort of been in you know the the go to studio to design the alien and, and create the suits. And I guess Tom Woodruff is the one who actually was like the lead alien in this one. He was actually in the suit and performing. So I think they were a bit more involved in the design. Maybe some people didn't care for that. Um, you know, but generally I think in terms of, of the, the look of the Predator, I think this does a pretty good job of it. It's not bad. Um, and it, it certainly makes them feel imposing and, and you know, frightening to see, uh, which Predators kind of does the same thing uh, a few years after this. Uh, they are also massive in that movie. I didn't really, I don't know. I guess the size change was, I've seen Predator 2 many times. I've seen Predator more times than I can actually count. That's one of those sure. movies that like, I have yeah, a cold easy to and I'm going to be on the couch for several hours. I want to watch Predator. Um, I always felt like the big lumbering, I thought that was there from the beginning. I don't know. Yeah, I've I've never seen them as being super quick. Maybe this is coming from the video games because in the video games the predators are are quite mobile. Well, um, everybody and, and you would can, be pissed if they couldn't control it. Exactly, <laughs> you know. Um, so maybe it's coming from that, like people's expectations about the movement of a predator or the size of a predator, you know, just being off. But uh, again, I think a little bit of this is too. Like Anderson is a big fan of you know, when you are realizing one of these fantastic things, he does like to amp it up. You know, think about Goro from Mortal Kombat. Eh. Uh, you know, like Goro was the, you know, the final boss, of the original Mortal Kombat, four arms, you know, they, uh, they designed a suit rather than doing some other sort of special effect and, and he's just big and lumbering and imposing, but it works, you know, so I can feel him maybe sort of thinking he should apply a similar, a similar quality here. Um, there are some people who take issue from a production design standpoint with the Alien Queen. Again, there's some early 2000 CG in this uh, to deal with some of those problems. And I mean, everybody, CG from this era is just bad. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's what not good. Do? It does not hold up well. I'm not going to malign the film for using the technology that it had at the time to try and tell its story. And they did use uh, a high. I was a hydraulic alien. They used like those, some mm -hmm. of the aliens were real. Yeah, no, they're not all CG for sure. The 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 most egregious offenders, if you're if you're really going to get nitpicky, are uh, sort of the CG queen stuff at the end. And the the flashback to them blowing up the temple. All those yeah yeah really cheesy. But. Yeah, that was you know. But again, that kind of a large scale rendering is is just crazy. Um. <sighs> I think, again, you know, the Predator dies uh, during the Queen fight. You know, we get a nice little Bishop reference back to Aliens with, with his end. And we also um, throw the Queen in or out or down a thing. The Queen has yes, to be thrown you know, out of something. 
has to, to, to go down a thing mm-hmm. to, to die, because that's the only way to kill a queen, even though there's, there's no indication that the queen would not be able to survive uh, underwater. <laughs> Whatever, man, you know. Uh, I'm not going to get nitpicky and be like, oh, well, actually, a queen would never, anyway, whatever. Pretty sure they could survive sub-zero <clears throat> temperatures. Exactly. The queen never actually dies in space. Uh, they just float out there forever, and they, they can't do anything. Well, hopefully uh, they which... float into the goddamn sun. <laughs> Eventually. Isn't that where they all end up? So, you know, again, I, I think there are, there are certainly some things we can nitpick in terms of production design and overall sort of, you know, design of the special effects and things. But honestly, the suits look good. They, they you know, they still look pretty good. The predator effects and the, uh, you know, they, they do have an actual predator mask with uh, an, an articulated face, you know, in sort of in traditional style, like they weren't trying to, you know, it's not CG mandibles or anything like that. And so I think a lot of that still works pretty well. If anything, the predator face is a bit too clean. Uh, I, I would I would maybe sort of agree to that. Like it's it's just not as uh, it just doesn't look as well painted as some of the previous versions. So they maybe could have done some stuff there. But um, ultimately, it's it's not a big deal. Uh, there's some cool shots in here. You know, even at the end when the the other predators show up and uh, sort of decloak all around her, and the, you know, like the ship's been hanging there this whole I time, liked that <laughs> you know, <a> watching <laughs> the whole thing. You know, but this is their trial, right? This is what they had to do. And if they survive, great. If they don't, whatever. Um, you know, but uh, that that whole sequence kind of is, is cool. And definitely, again, we're you know, dealing with a, a Predator 2 situation here where the Predators begrudgingly acknowledge that a human has some, some value outside of being a meat bag, which is cool. And, of course, they carry away their, their fallen comrade into the, the much larger ship than they came down in, which is kind of neat. But uh, you know, I, I think ultimately it 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 works out. Like I, I think the film concludes well. I think a lot of those smaller issues as you're watching, you know, can kind of fade away. Um, let's talk a little bit about pacing, though, because I, I do feel like for a movie that's a hundred minutes long, this movie feels longer than that. Um, it's not a swift moving experience, and I, I don't know if that's a bad thing. But it certainly is a surprising thing because it does feel like it takes a long time to get going, which is another alien hallmark, right? I mean, like the in Aliens, people complain. I mean, nobody complains about aliens, but nothing in that movie happens until forty-five minutes in. Yeah. Like you don't see an alien until forty-five minutes into that movie. In the theatrical cut, obviously, you see a face hugger if you watch the director's cut because that's pretty much right off the bat. But we're talking theatrical cut, the cut most people know, the cut most people are familiar with. It is an it is nearly an hour. Until you see an alien in that movie, yeah, and this this kind of does a similar thing, right? Um, where it's build up, right? It's a process to get them to that point, and uh, it still kind of works for me. But it does result in a movie that can feel a bit slow if you're wanting a more sort of you know modern action beat every four pages kind of thing. You know? I don't necessarily want that all the time. Um, <clears throat> I like it when a movie will slow down and at least try to create some moments. I don't know. I feel like a lot of movies just go way too fast where usually I'm questioning, why are we here again? What are we doing? What's going on? Whereas this does... This feels a little bit more like a movie that could have been made 
earlier, maybe like an 80s, 90s action film, as opposed to that 2000s and beyond frenetic, you know, if you have any kind of epileptic condition, there will be flashing lights, you know. I kind of like that the movie didn't do that. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, again, I think the problem is that this is a movie that is a product of franchises that were successful and existed pre-Matrix. Mm. Like, I think, I think the Matrix just kind of killed this sort of action filmmaking. It improved and yet um, ruined everything. I mean, yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, you know, like it's it it's so dropped an atomic bomb on what it meant to be an action film. I mean, and you can look at the next ten years and see the result of that, and how many movies got made because they used slow motion or because they had kung fu action in them that was exciting. You know, that really probably had no right to exist <laughs> without that. Yeah. Um. You know, but if if you look at some of the other like. You know, action movies at this time period, you're getting stuff like Gone in 60 Seconds. You're getting, you know, Shanghai Noon, right? Like, you know, I mean, there is there's a lot of, like, not great stuff coming out around this time. Um, I mean, Blade Trinity was released this year. Like, no, don't be talking any shit about Blade. You know, like, that movie has problems catwoman catwoman came out this year yeah yeah i mean like uh i will say the original hellboy did come out in 04 uh so and and that was was good but even it's it's really close man like i have but i have issues with that too because that also is a bit of a slow burn like it is not action-packed like there is a tremendous amount of character work going on um i robot came out this year which uh you know we will talk about the the, only movie the I Ale- ever walked out on was uh, just too We'll talk about the, the Alex Proyas problem. <laughs> the Alex Proyas just uh man. I, I don't know what happened, but and, yeah. and I'm I'm not I would never hate on Alex Proyas. I have no. I have a Mm-mm. line from one nope, of nope, his nope. movies tattooed on my body. I love that man. Yeah. Yeah. But Proyas what is, the hell is, is he doing? Incredible. I, I have no idea. I, I don't he spent a couple years in Hollywood jail, and uh, it just is not come out of it, unfortunately. Um, and and crazily enough, the other thing that people forget is that Resident Evil Apocalypse also came out this year. <laughs> so uh, the the follow up to Anderson's own Resident Evil film came out this year, made because he was off making OEVP and couldn't make it. So he um, kind of had he was working against himself. In some ways, yeah. Because I remember um, Apocalypse being big. Uh, it, Resident Evil had been enough of a surprise that they put, because this is all Screen Gems, um, which uh, Screen Gems has been a pretty prominent uh, like low-budget action movie uh, company for quite a while. And uh, Screen Gems actually put some money behind Apocalypse, which unfortunately was, was poorly placed, because Apocalypse is not a good movie no. by any stretch of the imagination. That is the one where Mia, jo- Mia, Mia Jovovich, excuse me, um, uh, backflips off of a motorcycle into a church is it, and murders a liquor before she hits the ground, I is think. Is it the one um, that had Nemesis? Yeah. Yes, it is the one where they had Nemesis. Okay, and I they introduced Jill Valentine as a character. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a good movie, man. Like it's it's rough. 
um really the like two and three uh and then i guess anderson came back for four yeah i'm pretty sure he came back for Resident Evil four and then he, he did the rest of them and they were all you know fine um but yeah no it's it's bad you know so i mean that's like this that's like action movies of that time period right and none of them really hold up right i mean like kill bill volume two came out that year but we can't even really that's include a tarantino it, you know film. yeah like it's it's just, again a different tier of films and directors um you know but there's there's just not a ton of interesting stuff happening in action films at this time and nobody's really doing anything that we look back on now and be like yeah yeah whereas this i think is is entirely workable i do too um like it's it's a a, a fine film it's serviceable um, it exists sort of outside Alien and Predator now, like most people don't. It's obviously not canon, although the Predator, the new Predator, attempted to sort of canonize it by having the Easter egg with the staff and everything. But, you know, a lot of people don't consider it canon anymore, and it's it just sort of exists in its own thing, which I think actually helps the film. I think if you can watch it without worrying about its connections and ties to the rest of the Alien series just for what it is, I think it's a pretty enjoyable action experience. Um, because the action, I guess we can, we can really delve into that here. The action in this is actually pretty fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I don't really think Anderson is a great action director. His cuts during action sequences can be a bit janky. Um, they don't always read well from point to point. Um, a lot of people commented that the action, in this feels slow because again, the predators are very big, they're very lumbering. So they're kind of, you know, they're not sprinting across the screen with great speed or anything like that. Um, I think what the technique that we see pretty commonly now that this might have benefited from is uh, the speed ratcheting that you'd see in you know all the modern all the Marvel movies yeah. since uh, Winter Soldier use it where you undercrank the camera slightly to like twenty frames a second and then when you speed it back up to twenty four it's just a little bit faster right it's not enough to be fast motion and look weird but it's enough that it, the hits are a little faster the characters are moving a little quicker you know it makes something feel more energetic than it actually was. And this movie, given the size and presence of its characters, might have actually benefited from that just a little bit. Probably. But I think, but I think it it also contributes this the the sort of methodical nature of it also contributes to this idea of these two titanic forces sort of butting heads, um, you know, where it's not about speed, you know, necessarily. Well, and if we're, I don't know, if we're kind of talking about this as a transitional film in terms of action movies. The era prior to this, our action heroes were big lumbering guys. I mean, I've never mm -hmm. seen Arnold Schwarzenegger move fast in a movie. <laughs> sure, I don't. Yeah. I don't not... think he's known for moving fast. He actually plays the Terminator, the slow moving terror. So, I don't know the the action being slow. I feel like it's slower, but it hits a little harder. Mm -hmm. where the fight scenes are a little more visceral they're a little it feels like there's more of a connecting punch i guess um and there isn't so much quickness there's not a lot of you know limber movement but i kind of like it it's a little bit of a throwback yeah for sure um and i don't think i, I don't think we've said specifically but the aliens themselves in this movie look fantastic they do. like they are probably the best rendition of what we would we would now consider the classic alien construction you know the, the alien born of a human uh again forgetting about all of Ridley scouts yeah, none of them had eyes with. and none of them had boobs 
And nope, nope. One of them um, came from from an android on a planet. <laughs> nope. Uh, none of them burst out of Billy Crudup. Um, yeah, like uh, it's it's pretty. Uh, they they just they, they look really good. Like um, you know the in terms of the the classic look of the alien, they're a little wet, right? There's a lot of wetness. Uh, but then again, that kind of goes back to the original Alien. Alien that one was constantly just dripping stuff everywhere, which is interesting enough. Um, but the aliens are sort of universally praised. I think I, they just all look fantastic. It's really the predator design that people had issues with because it was a little bit counter to what they'd seen before. But again, you only had two movies with these things, and you only saw. I mean, I I guess we should have. I could have gone back and actually like counted down how much actual screen time a predator gets, but it's got to be under ten minutes, maybe fifteen at this point that we've actually seen a predator on screen. The rest of it's coming from comics and people drawing them, which it doesn't count you know at least not to me so sort of hot riding out the predators and having them be these uh you know sort of super impressive specimens i'm fond of it i think it's okay i don't know i'm looking uh, i'm looking at a picture of the 87 predator right now and it looks exactly like the one in avp it looks like scar yeah no i mean as far as its design for sure like down to the helmet and everything like the helmet is very much the 87 predator and even in size like scar's not that much bigger he's wearing more armor mm -hmm. but i don't know i just i can't i can't get down with that criticism i think i think that's almost silly yeah it seems like a weird thing to be upset about but i mean i mean the the film culture we exist in now uh, it, it's just weird things to be upset about 90 percent of the time um like i i hate that i wa i spend a lot of my time watching you know, YouTube videos of people, you know, critiquing generally bad movies, but movies in general. And, and so now my, my feed is constantly full of just people being angry about, you know, Lando Calrissian's scarf was the wrong color and solo, like that kind of stuff. And it's like, dude, come on. <laughs> like, I get it. You're fine. It's fine if you want to have that level of, of, you know, complete connection with the world of a character. Like, I get that. And I'm, I'm with you in a lot of cases. But at the end of the day, man, like, it's, it's okay. It's really all right. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't think it's necessarily terrible to, to want to make these things feel larger than life. Again, I mean, it's, it's a giant space alien fighting another space alien for dominance inside of a temple underneath the Arctic. Yeah. What about this requires realism? <laughs> I, I don't. You know, Why do you want realism like, in this movie? Why? Right. You know, like you need plausibility. You need to be able to buy into the world. Absolutely. But there is a there is a wide gulf between plausibility and realism. Right? Like those are two very different worlds. Um, you know, like I don't want Oliver Stone making my alien movie. I don't really want my Oliver alien versus Stone Predator movie. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's fine if he doesn't make anything else. But you know, like imagine, I mean, there's somebody out there who's been like, oh, I, I want to see Platoon with with Predators, and it's like you don't. Yeah, you really don't. You might you, think. I mean, you, you do. may think you do, you but you really don't. Because um, again, James Cameron made that movie, and it was called Aliens, and it was fine, but. You can't do that again. It's it's, and if you do, it's it's not going to be the same. Uh, I don't know. But, um, yeah. So I mean, in, in terms of of its overall effect, uh, this is definitely a problematic movie. Like it's it's not perfect, of course not. But I, I think that it definitely is unfairly looked down upon. I think in terms of these big franchises that you know were sort of titans of their day, 
this is a fun little dalliance between the two of them, uh, right? Now, it didn't kick off another franchise. We didn't get a dozen of these things, um, but that's okay, right? It, it's sort of a nice little standalone thing that you can watch. If, if anything, that's the role that it occupies for me now. Like, if I am working on something, and this is probably a bad thing to say, but if I'm working on something or I just want something to watch that is a, that is present, you know, I, I, I'm feeling sick, laying on the couch, whatever, this is that movie for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I just put it on because it's watchable. It's fun. And if I fall doesn't asleep, require a lot from okay. me. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't really require anything from me. Like, I don't have to invest a tremendous amount of energy in, uh, you know, watching it. Uh, and, and that's kind of nice. You know, it, it occupies a, a space in filmmaking that is, is growing narrower all the time. As, as action movies, modern action movies, become these big, bloated you know, franchise still, Statements. but these, these big bloated statements. enterprises. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love Avengers Endgame. It's three and a half hours yeah, long. Yeah, like, it's, you did not I mean, need good Lord. that. I don't need that. <laughs> I actually avoid seeing Marvel movies. I, I avoid the Disney military-industrial complex in, in any way that I can. But those movies in particular... It's just taking action films away from what I really enjoyed about them. I enjoy, you know, when Netflix releases a small action film, you know, something mm-hmm. that will just be simple. Um, yeah. Apparently the new Hemsworth one, uh, Extraction, which I have on my list, but I haven't watched yet, is, is that. I made and it's, the it's mistake solid. of watching yeah. Angel Has Fallen. Um Oh, okay. We could talk about this because uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say it. I I kind of love those movies. I know you. Uh, I know you love those, and I was they're with it. awful, but I love them. I was yeah, I was with it as a, as as funny. Like yeah, this is funny. Yeah, absolutely. Angel has fallen though. I it was rough. That was really rough. <laughs> yeah, I, like you know, I I didn't expect that those movies to have a second movie in it, let alone a third. And this one felt reaching, mostly because a lot of the, you know, they couldn't even get Rada Mitchell back to play his wife. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, guys, come on. Like, well, Rada Mitchell is too busy for you. Maybe that means you should not make this movie. <laughs> precisely, you know. And and so uh, there were some things there. But I don't know. There's something about watching Gerard Butler just, just egregiously murder people. That is, I'm okay with it. Uh, but he did finally watch that one. I, I still think uh, London Has Fallen is probably my favorite, uh, just because there's a sequence in that where he's uh, talking to one of the terrorists over a walkie-talkie and he's, like, torturing his brother at the same time. Oh, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> just, oh, my God. And he's like, oh, he's dead now. Sorry about that. And it's like, <laughs> okay. Holy <laughs> shit. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I was like, oh, that was an extreme move. Um, but, you know, so, th- again, I have a place for those. But, yeah, it's it's a bit of a rough watch. Uh, because again, it's it's a movie that is sort of striding these these eras to a bit. Like you know that that's a movie that that's a franchise that would have existed with absolutely no problems in 1992. Yeah, it's like it's, they would have made it's a commando six of those things. Esque, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. franchise. And call call him John Matrix. Yeah. and you're good. <laughs> yeah. And and that's fine. You know, I still like those. Those can be fun. Uh, I guess the Equalizer movies are kind of in that space too. Um, which if, again, if, if you haven't seen those, the Equalizers are great. Like, I love those really movies. Really good action movies. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I'll watch Denzel Washington do anything. Like the man's a genius. But but that is, is absolutely. Just I keep a copy so of Deja Vu on 
like on the ready at all times just for me oh, to totally. watch whenever yeah. like that's one of my favorite like action that's one of my favorite popcorn movies mm-hmm. um uh, book of eli book is of up eli, there for yeah. me too which i have i have my love book of eli tremendous movie. um but so I, I think this is what we're we're sort of coming down to is that Yes, while this is not necessarily up to the very lofty expectations post Aliens, because uh, we really can't. If we're going to talk about lofty expectations, we cannot include Alien Three and Alien Four. Um, the the lofty expectations of this film fitting neatly and nicely into these two Titanic franchises. I don't think this movie does a good job of doing that, but I think it does a very good job of being a pretty solid late 80s early 90s style action flick with some really cool stuff some really cool uh alien and predator designs and uh, enough you know sort of cool stuff going on that i think it's it's a pretty good watch it, you know even today it would have been really successful in like 1995 right <laughs> which is honestly probably when pre-production on this thing started <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I it was a, another one of those long gestating projects. I don't know. Well, I do know what it was at 20th Century Fox. A lot of it had to do with upper management at 20th Century Fox, not David Geimer franchises. And Walter Hill. <laughs> yeah, that too. Um, like they did not want to make this movie for a long time, and <clears throat> you know, I it existed sort of in production hell for a bit, and so I, I would imagine that the seeds of what we got here probably started during that time period. <clears throat> and again, movies changed significantly between 1995 and 2004 and 2005. Like, you know, just what it meant to be an action movie, a blockbuster, quote unquote, was a very different thing from one time to another. And I guess at the end, you get a movie that's more a patchwork quilt of action films over a decade and what happened to them over a decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just little pieces and parts. <clears throat> which there are a, a pretty, you know, there's a large number of, of story credits here. A lot of it having to do with, you know, bringing in characters and ideas from previous franchises. But there were a lot of uh, people that worked on this movie and, and, you know, sort of offered their ideas. And, and you can kind of feel that for sure. And I, I imagine at the end of the day, um, Anderson, you know, he'd made the version that, or he made the version he wanted to make, but um, it certainly does have its its limitations from a story standpoint. It, it could have been uh, a lot more, but I mean, Anderson is credited with the final screenplay, um, so I imagine he came in and kind of did his own thing. But I, I'm sure that there were many, many voices, lots and lots of input along the way as to what uh, what we wanted to see. But ultimately, it, it was his film, and, and we can kind of hang that on him, I suppose. Um, all right, so let's uh, sort of talk about what, you know, given its issues, and it does have issues, what is a thing that we think we could have, you know, changed? What is the, the one thing that we would want to change about this to sort of turn this movie around? What does it need to elevate it outside of this more problematic mm. state? I would say a more distinctive visual style. I think if it had taken more risks with the way it looked, it might stick in people's heads a little bit more. Mm. Um, like I, I, I could even go so far as to say the the what was 
what was the one where they were, was it Predators? Where they were on the planet? Yeah, they're on like the, the Predator yeah, hunting planet. Yeah. That movie. <clears throat> they get like par- parachuted in right at the beginning. That movie yeah. had more of a, a cohesive look that I remember. I can remember the way that that movie looked. I can remember the way that it felt. And even though I didn't enjoy it, <laughs> I st- yeah, it's, it's not great. It's still stuck <laughs> in my head as having a sort of vision to it. Whereas this film, I think because it is so many different hands trying to be a part of this franchise and trying to craft the vision of Alien versus Predator, and there are so many other things that informed it, I feel like if it had, if maybe Anderson had pushed a little bit harder to bring in that that style that he obviously had in movies like Event Horizon and Soldier, if he would have pushed a little harder to bring that in, I wonder if it would have been a more lasting impression. That's my take. Yeah, um, like I said, we've we've talked about the visuals, and I, I'm definitely on board. I think this is just a film that feels very flat very gray um and and the alien movies have always especially alien predator less so since they've been you know jungle movies the jungle of the city the jungle of the actual jungle um which are just more dense and more interesting locations visually right you just do more stuff um this one it's it's just sort of broad it's open it it feels like it was made in a soundstage right like it it is and and all, most movies are like I'm not maligning movies for being made in sound stages, not shooting on location. You're you're not going to shoot this movie in the Arctic, right? Like, and I I wouldn't expect that. But at the same time, I know in the back of my head for the entirety of this film, and there is nothing about the lighting or set design or production design that convinces me otherwise. I know that this is a sound stage. I know that these are sets, and and I never it just never does a good job of, of bringing that in. So I I'm a hundred percent on board that I think. A little more visual polish, a little more time spent on style, because Anderson is one of those guys that, he, again, he doesn't have a defined style, um, and I'm not trying to compare him to a director like David Fincher who who has that, right? Like, you watch a Fincher movie, you're like, this is a David Fincher movie. Um, like, it is obvious from the ground up, but this, it just doesn't have that, it's more of like cohesion, like visual cohesion, it just doesn't hang together. Uh, when you put it all out on the stage, and and I, I, I can feel that. It doesn't mean there's not the good shots. There are some great shots in this. Um, there's some really nice moments, um, especially in the director's cut where they get to do a little bit more violence. There's some some cool scenes that they had to cut out of the theatrical. But I mean, honestly, the final fight with the the queen alien looks really good. Like you know, it's it's surprisingly impressive. You really get to see some of the alien or the predator. Uh, weaponry, you know, for the first time, which is kind of neat too. But uh, so I, I think visually, yeah, there's definitely some stuff that could could be done better. For me, I think it probably does have to do with character moments, right? Character arcs. I do not think the characterization is bad, right? I think we know who most of the characters are, even the predators, right? We get an idea of their their qualities, right? I think we can understand that. And I think Anderson is very good at establishing quick characterization. But I think a lot of the characters that we're meant to care about don't really get good arcs, right? Even in their moments. Because, you know, I'll go back even to Alien 3, right? Which is a problematic movie all its own. (laughs) But, you know, um, Charles Dance's doctor character, 
mm-hmm. in that film. You know, the one that Ripley falls sort of in love with, or at least has a little relationship with. He starts off that movie being you know, distant and cold and wary, and then by the time he exits that film, right, by the time his character is brought out of that movie, he has changed, right? He's taken a risk, and he has done something to move his character forward and that ultimately results in his demise but that's okay right you still feel a a satisfying sense of who this guy was and who he is uh same for uh in a, in a more limited uh, in a more limited way oh gosh what was that other character um is it charles dutton is that his name uh yes yes um he plays like the leader of the prisoners mm-hmm. Um, same thing with him, right? He's, he's like distant and cold. And then by the end of it, he becomes this, this like rallying figure, like a revolutionary figure who's, who's fighting against the alien. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that he's actually my you know, favorite character in the movie. It, I, I love oh, oh, Yeah, him. for sure. Like Dylan, Dylan, uh, is, is a fantastic character. Like he is but it's because he's given like a satisfying arc, right? He like hates Ripley. He doesn't care about her. Everything she's done is ruining their lives. And then by the end of it, he's, he's fighting, you know, like everybody else. And, and he gets that, that arc, right? It's satisfying. So that even if he exits the film, even if he's killed or he's died, you know, he dies, you, you feel a sense of, well, I know who that guy is. And I think this movie suffers by not having enough of those moments. Um, the unrated edition, I think, um, I think this is an unrated thing. I don't think it's in the theatrical. I have to, to look at them again. But, um, you know, we get the scene where the Predator and Alexa are coming through and they find the archaeologist, you know, in the, the room, right? And he's been impregnated and he's not dead yet, hasn't chest bursted yet. And so, you know, I guess chest burster timing aside it probably should have chest bursted out of him at that point given what we'd seen previously again whatever um and then she she kills him right so we get that again a call back to that moment in aliens when they kill the woman who's attached to the wall and, and trigger the alien attack and you know she has to to kill this guy that ostensibly she's developed marginal feelings for and uh you know we have to, to sort of reckon with that but again, we don't know enough about that guy. We haven't seen that guy change enough to really care about his death. Mm-hmm. And so in that scene, all we really care about is, is what she's losing. And that's that's a weakness, yeah. right? Like in terms of script design, it's it's like knowing all the moves, you know, like knowing the, the gambit that you're trying to play in chess, but not really how it functions, right? Like I know where my pieces are going to end up, but I don't really understand the methodology for why. And, and if anything, I would say that that's something that when Anderson has written his own scripts, and by far the strongest Anderson movies are the ones where he did not write the script. Yeah. Um, he probably did rewriting. But when Anderson writes himself, which, uh, again, Resident Evil, he writes most of those. Um, death you know, Race. And, and some of, uh, death, <laughs> death Race. <laughs> yes, we can't ever forget Death Race. I mean, um, he did write it. <laughs> you know, he, he did, he did indeed. Um, but I mean, when he writes his own scripts, that's kind of the weakness for me is that he understands what characters need to do in the films and he understands the pieces that need to be there to make them function, but they never really come together. And I think a lot of it just has to do with not really 
executing those arcs well. And maybe that happens in the, the editing room. You know, maybe they just don't have the time or maybe he doesn't have the budget to go back and get those in reshoots or whatever. But it's the it's the little moments, right? Yeah. You know, we talked about Endgame, um, you know, which, you know, it's, it's a big, bloated, huge action movie. Uh, I enjoy it. I, I'm not going to lie. Like, the Marvel stuff is right up my alley. Like, I, you know, I, I love them all. But, um you know, the, the sort of penultimate moment in Endgame is a, a sacrifice by a significant character. I won't say who, just because it's you know, spoiled. <laughs> but that huge moment, they they did not film initially. You know, they got into the, the editing room and they said, you know, we, this isn't working. Like, this moment is not working. The character is not... We're not closing off the character in a way that's satisfying. Like, it's not working. So what are we going to do? So they rewrote the scene, they brought everybody back, they shot it on a green screen so they could edit it in. And, and created uh, an ultimate moment for uh, a really significant character way after the fact. Like, you know, totally something that they had missed in the process of building the film. And, and I don't know if Anderson, you know, would have gotten the opportunity to go back and do that kind of stuff. And so for me, it's, it's really digging into, it wouldn't have to be everybody, but a couple of the key characters, uh, so that when they do leave the story... You know, we feel a little bit more of that punch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but that's, you know, again, in an action movie, do you need that? No. But does it add that layer of um, concern? Absolutely. You know, it's something that I, I think would, would elevate it. Because, again, at the end of the day, if we're talking about, like, Die Hard, I mean, that's, that's why. You care about John McClane. You don't know anything about him. You don't need to know anything about him. But you, you know enough. know just enough that you care about what happens to him and his family and, and everybody involved, you know, but like, you know, you don't care about Coke guy. Like, you know enough about Coke guy that, you know, when he dies, you're like, Oh, Coke guy. See you Sorry. later. <laughs> See you later. Coke guy. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, that for me would make it a, a little bit more meaningful. And, you know, it may have been one of those things that they were hoping to get a chance to expand on in the sequel and bring these characters back or something. But, that didn't happen. Um, oh, real quick thing I was thinking about uh, with uh, Mark Verheiden, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote Time Cop. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Mark, that was actually his comic oh. at uh, Dark Horse, and he wrote Time Cop. Yeah, uh, that was the other movie that I was thinking about when we were watching this. I was like, oh, God, we're going to have to talk there about Time Cop at some point. enough time. To oh you. gosh, dude. But um, yeah, <laughs> and, totally. Like, and oh my the monsters from Brussels was originally slated to play the predator. To play the predator, yeah, that is it our our connection. Our circle. that's right. That's our that's our six degrees of separation. That's right. That Jean Claude Van Damme was going to be the original original predator so in red wasn't. bug suit. He wouldn't cover his face. Nope, didn't want to wear the mask, uh, which uh, I guess makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, most people have clauses in their contracts to prevent that, except for Carl Urban. Carl Urban dread. is he, the best. Carl Urban's awesome. He is the best. He's the judge. Love everything. Oh. Uh, which we were, uh, I know I mentioned this in our, our chat the other day, but I think we're going to have to, if you have never seen uh, Legion and Priest, um, I, I think both of them are on Netflix right now, but you need to check those I'm not out. Sure anything with Carl uh, uh, it's well. It's it's primarily Paul Bettany. I like Paul him Bettany too. leads both those films. Yeah, uh, this is pre-vision Paul Bettany. He was doing the voice of Jarvis in the movies, but he was not had not exploded yet. Um, 
uh, he had been, you know, he'd done quite a few things, but still, he had not achieved the level of superstardom that he has now because of Marvel stuff. But that's all it takes. You get in one Marvel movie, it's, and you're it's set one of the Marvel movies, man. Kamel Nanjiani, sexiest man alive now because he was in a Marvel movie, and they paid for him to get get in shape. Couldn't he Pretty have cool. just been the sexiest <laughs> man alive before that? I mean, I've seen him on Pakistani? Silicon Valley. He's pretty good. Oh, he's pretty good. I think he's but adorable. Anyway, yeah, no, he's awesome. I'm, I'm excited for where they're, they're headed with that. I think he's going to be pretty cool. Uh, all right, so a uh, little bit of character arc work, a little bit of visual flair from our friend Paul W. S. Anderson. We'd probably have a much different movie in our hands. Uh, I guess you know we'll. We're going to recommend this one, I think. We're going to talk about that here in a sec. But, uh, you know, in terms of Paul W.S. Anderson, we've got some other movies we're definitely going to talk about on this podcast, Event Horizon being one of them. If you haven't seen it, look it up. Uh, but it is rough. It is, it is a horror movie, uh, 100%. Like, it is not a space horror movie with a little bit of horror. It is a horror movie with a little bit of space. Yeah. It's um, a horror movie but, uh, with a lot of bit of horror. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, there. let's just say there is a floating frozen body that collapses to the ground and, and is uh, disintegrated. Decompression doesn't good. do that. <sighs> yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, Soldier, uh, which I think is probably one that is just absolutely forgotten. Nobody remembers that movie, which I think is that sad. That was, like, at uh, the, not, the end of the reign of Kurt yeah. Russell. As yeah, that's the end of 90s Kurt Russell, uh, right before he sort of... You know, exited stage right for a, a couple of years. He was still working, but not. You know, he was. I guess it was really death proof. That's uh, kind of brought him back a little and bit. And he Another mostly Tarantino did that for resurrection. the funnies. He was like, oh, "Yeah, oh, women sure. are gonna beat the shit out of me. That'll be fun." <laughs> yeah. No, Russell. You know, it's 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 fun to see him in just about anything. But he's really good in Soldier. Um, Soldier is one of those. It was another long gestating script that had been in Hollywood for a long time. Nobody wanted to do it for a variety of reasons. Anderson took a, took a crack at it, and I think came up with something pretty good. Um, but uh, so, Event Horizon Soldier is a really good time. Um, you know, if you want some some additional Paul W. S. Anderson, and and again, if you haven't revisited. Uh, Mortal Kombat in a while. It's it actually doesn't holds up okay. It's, it's not bad. It's on I mean, Netflix. it's a you should watch that's right. it. It's amazing. Um, yeah, it's it's not bad. Especially you, you can at that time in history, nobody was making video game movies that that were were that okay, and that is it's something to remember. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap up. Uh, like I said, I think good discussion. Um, but let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, our failure piece score here. Uh, so the failure piece score is a circle, uh, with one hundred percent being a hidden gem, something that um, you should definitely seek out and find, something that has truly been missed, uh, rather than being a failure. Maybe it's something else. Um, and so everything leading up to that is sort of degrees, right? Uh, where, yes, you know, maybe it's not a hidden gem, but it's still worth your time. So um, where would you put this on our failure piece scale? Zero to 100. 100 being uh, something that we, we really have mislabeled as a failure and actually there's something else. As a former teacher, I always look at 100-point scales as a teacher. So I feel like somewhere in the 80s for this, maybe like in... Like a solid 84, like a B minus. Mm. Like it's not great. No. But it's honestly, it's above average. I would definitely not yeah, say Especially for the era. Like, again, if you look at the other movies coming, the other like action movies coming out in 2004, yeah. Like, would I take this over iRobot? Oh, any day. God. Over Resident Evil Apocalypse? Any, any day. 
right? Like, no questions asked. Um, you know, it was a rough time for movies in general. Like, there was just not, it was kind of a barren wasteland. Like, nobody really knew what to do. It's, it kind of feels like we're coming back in another time period like that. Um, you know, Hollywood has its, its sort of great swings in various directions. Um, you know, the 80s was a huge explosion of genre filmmaking. And then the 90s, people kind of swung back towards realism. Genre filmmaking took a backseat. Then we kind of swung right back into genre filmmaking again after The Matrix. And then now we kind of swung out of that. And now, obviously, with Marvel, we've come back into it. And I think we're kind of getting ready for another realistic period where people are going to start rejecting, um, you know, the more escapist type stuff. If, but If that means fewer comic book movies, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I feel like we're we're getting to that point. Um, you know, Marvel's going to keep doing what it's doing, but I really don't know if they're going to be able to find the same level of success that they did with this, uh, you know, the, the Infinity Saga. Um, but I don't know. Who knows? I'm I'm not a, a movie prognosticator. It's very difficult for me to read the market from my very limited position in the world. But uh, I do know that um, I think the it's not necessarily failure, but I think the the decline of Star Wars is a pretty good piece of evidence of that. People are starting to say, like, I don't want to watch this. I don't think I like this Star Wars anymore. <laughs> right. And and DC's struggles to sort of get their stuff off the ground. I mean, Marvel's really the only one that's been executing super well, and I think that's because it's extremely homogenized. Yeah. Like it's 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 made for the maximum number of people to Marvel find. Marvel movies are like a glass decent. of warm milk. Right before bedtime. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just you know there's there's nothing tremendously offensive or or you know, difficult about them. I mean, there you could find your 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 points if you want to, but they're made to be maximally acceptable by the greatest number of people by design, right? And that's that's why they found the success. Whereas you know Zack Snyder out here doing his like. I think Superman's an asshole thing, uh, you know, fewer people are on board with. <laughs> Although there apparently are quite a few who demand to see Zack Snyder's vision for DC unfold. I don't know if you saw that with the HBO Max yeah. stuff. Oh my gosh. That's craziness. Um, all right. So for me, uh, with AVP, uh, I'm going to put this right up at like a pretty solid 86. Uh, it's, it's pretty high for me. I think this is a good solid B movie, quite literally. Um, it is not fantastic. It is not a hidden gem by any stretch because a lot of people saw this movie. You know, it, it found some success on home video, even if it didn't make a ton of box office. <clears throat> but um, it's it's a really watchable flick. Uh, it functions. Uh, you know, if you think of movies as an engine that needs to drive itself forward, uh, it needs to to give itself just enough gas to keep things book you know booking at a decent pace. This movie adheres to that rule, right? You know, it's something that we would have seen pretty commonly in like a, a, a 70s or 80s action movie, right? You know, we've got a decent idea, in this case, very high concept of two, you know, franchises coming together, and, and we're just going to kind of push the engine forward, and we're going to do everything we need to do to keep it going. And so, yeah, it's it's like an, like an 86 for me. It's it's pretty good. I, I think it, it sort of tends towards that scale, and if you, even if you don't like alien movies, even if you don't like predator movies, uh, which I know plenty of people who don't, this is kind of its own thing, yeah. and it's kind of fun in its own way, uh, because it is not a horror film with some action elements like Alien, and it is not a action film with some horror elements like Predator. It really is just straight action, right? There's some you know horrific things, but nothing is played for that, right? Nobody is is 
you know, hovering on Veronica Cartwright's face as blood streams down, <laughs> you know, like there is nothing like that in this movie at all. Like the worst you get are some of the scenes of them, you know, trapped as a face hugger is trying to get on him or something like that's as tense as it gets. And, and I can understand why longtime franchise fans like alien, you know, like alien fans were disappointed because that's not what this movie's trying to do at all. That was never its intent. And, and that's okay. Like it can be its own thing. Uh, and as a, a just a, Paul W.S. Anderson action film, I think it's pretty fun. So, so that's where I'm at. Um, you know, so uh, this is definitely a recommend from us, mm -hmm. right? It's a, a solid B. Um, if you can hunt it down or find it cheap, I know it's streaming uh, at the moment. Uh, as the release of this, it's streaming on Amazon Prime Video for free. So you can literally check it out on there. I think most of the Alien movies are. I don't know if the Predator ones are. I think, but uh, yeah, I think that's still on Netflix. Uh, Maybe, yeah. Actually, I think I've seen. I think I watched Predator Two on Netflix a while back. So yeah, that would make sense. Um, but they're you know these are not difficult movies to find. You know, it's not like some of the. Uh, there are some other ones from the '90s that I, I have a difficult time hunting down at this point. You know, they're just not easy to come by. So this is not one of those, fortunately. But yeah, I'd say give it a shot, even if you don't like uh, the source material that uh, led to its creation. It kind of is a, a fun little thing, especially if you found some enjoyment in other Anderson stuff like the Resident Evil films. If you can sit down and watch those and kind of enjoy them, this is certainly within that same ballpark, although I think a little bit better than those in general. Agreed. All right. Uh, so where can you be found on the social media? I can be found skulking around Twitter at baskinator b-a-s-k-i-n-a-t-o-r and i am on instagram my instagram is fire and i am the baskinator on instagram very nice uh i too uh occasionally tweet not super often although i did get followed by charlie jane anderson the other day which kind of freaked me out uh it's one of my favorite authors Ooh. um I, I commented on a post she was making about her issues with the sorting hat cast system in Harry Potter and uh, how I believed that it was just a magic characterization machine. And she was like, I'll follow you back. And I was like, okay, cool. Uh, but yeah, I can be found on Twitter at uh, T Baskin. Uh, easy to find. I do have some other social, but I don't, don't use it very much. Twitter's definitely the way to get a hold of me if you need to. Uh, but uh, thanks once again for listening to this decently long episode of <laughs> uh, failure peace theater uh we love talking about movies we love people who are willing to listen to us talk about movies so thanks for being that person uh, if you have any questions get a hold of us and we'll see you next time